A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or ever wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well... Unfiltered, mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, Canopy is dermatologist-recommended. This unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free, installation's a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement. Go to canopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, Gore listeners can use our code ROSES at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Creams and serums are made of 70% water, 15% preservatives and emulsifiers, leaving only around 15% for the active ingredients that your skin needs. But luckily now, there's fiber skincare. 15 years ago, the scientists behind fiber skincare started working on nanofibers, which are 500 times smaller than human hair. You know, I, I saw that in um, Three Body Problem. Mm. One year ago, they patented a way of wrapping the nanofiber around oil or liquid-based ingredients. This means they can deliver five times the active ingredients compared to creams or serums, as there is no need for water, preservatives, or emulsifiers. The first formulation made with this technology is plant-based, anti-wrinkle. Uh, it's a set of patches that you use over a series of seven days. You just put these on whenever you would apply your serums, and your skin is going to feel tighter in 10 seconds. And over the seven-day oh. program, it has been clinically proven to reduce wrinkles by, get this, 19.4%, a very precise percentage. In fact... Mm. They have a tighter skin guarantee. If your skin isn't tighter in seven days, they're going to give you your money back. No questions asked. You get the tighter skin guarantee with this seven-day routine. Tighter skin or your money back. Get a 15% discount code by using the discount code GAME. That's Fiber Skincare. Hello, this is Bachelor Clues. You're listening to Game of Roses. And Pace Case and I are taking this week off. It's the one week that The Bachelor gave us a reprieve. There's not a show on for literally seven days, but it's obviously starting back up January 3rd with Clayton Eckerd's season 26 of The Bachelor. And we're going to be covering that for you, of course. But in this week, we're going to give you two episodes that were important to us as we have now gone on what has been a two-plus-year journey to chronicle our beloved game, all the players in our beloved game, everything they're doing on social media, and just kind of the state of reality television, American pop culture generally. So we hope that you enjoy this. What we have for you today is an episode called 
A Light in the Darkness, Revealing the Secrets of the Dark Seasons. This was an episode we did right after we received the Dark Seasons, that's seasons two through seven, and we plowed through them, uh, meticulously taking notes about all of the stuff that happened in them and how they affected the history of the game, the evolution of it, and of course, this was all made possible through the diligence and hard work of the Dark Seeker, Grace Ann Parks, who found these seasons for us. So thank you, Grace Ann. Thank you, everybody in the pit. We hope you're having a great time uh, this holiday season, and we hope that you enjoy this trip down memory lane. It's the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. This is the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. Are you here for the right reason, though? I will totally admit to the fact that when I came here, I came here for the experience and for the game because I'm competitive. I may be the witch, the bitch of the house, that's fine. You can all call me whatever you want. I feared coming back to the house with the whole body shot thing because I feared everyone saying that that's the only that reason why I got That doesn't make you rich. That makes you a slut. Welcome to Game of Roses. This is Pace Case. This is Bachelor Clues coming to you live from Los Angeles, California, where we just recorded the highest temperature in the history of our city, 120 degrees yesterday. Get out there. Enjoy it. I like this radio man voice. <laughs> That's my morning radio zoo voice. Before we get into the weather and what we're going to talk about in Gore State of the World, we have a bit of business up front to take care of. This episode is long. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen the time, but it's for very good reason. You see, we have the dark seasons, and the back half of this episode is going to be us taking you through everything that happened in all six of them. We hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did because it truly is fascinating to see what happened in these first couple of seasons and potentially why we were not able to find them. And we have one person to thank for our ability to view these things and bring you the details of what's inside them. That is, of course, Grace Ann Parks, the Dark Seeker. Thank you, Dark Seeker. And we have come now to a time when the Dark Seeker was not only seeking the dark season, she is, at this very moment, seeking employment. So we just wanted to let anyone out there who might be in need of someone to do anything, that Graceland Parks is available. If you didn't listen to our last episode, we can tell you some of her experience. She has been a social media strategist, a social media director. She led AOC's social media campaign that helped her get fucking elected. She has worked as an assistant to celebrities of various kinds. And most importantly, she found the fucking dark seasons, which means (laughs) she has the ability to literally do anything. So if anybody out there is in need of someone to help them with their social media strategies or to take some pictures for them of any type, please reach out to Grace Ann Parks at graceannparks at gmail.com. That's G-R-A-C-E-A-N-N-E-P-A-R-K-S at gmail.com. Help the Dark Seeker as much as she has helped us, please. (laughs) And now we are going to get to the first segment of this show. It is the same segment that we always do in the beginning of every show. We talk about some bit of business that has happened in the world that seems completely unrelated to The Bachelor, but we're going to tell you how, in fact, it is very related to The Bachelor. This is a segment we call 
Game of Roses. State of the world. Jeff Bezos just became the first person worth $200 billion. This is at the same time that 30 million American households don't have enough food for this week. What a culture. This goes back to the idea of money itself. We can't really pinpoint when it happened, but it was at least 10,000 years ago. And the same was true then that is true now. Whoever has the most money controls society, controls government, is able to have laws written that allow them to not only keep the money they have, but to make more. So the idea of rich getting richer, poor getting poor, has literally been in place since the dawn of the idea of money. And so there has always been a divide between rich and poor. This disparity between rich and poor has grown and grown and grown. And the more people there are and the more money there is, the bigger that divide gets. And now we are seeing with Jeff Bezos, the most people that have ever existed now exist. And the most money that has ever existed now exists. And so Jeff Bezos has 200 fucking billion dollars. Robert Reich listed out some of the billionaire wealth gains during the pandemic. Jeff Bezos gained $81 billion. Elon Musk, $60 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, $41 billion. Daniel Gilbert, $38 billion. Bill Gates, $15 billion. Charles Koch, $6 billion. Meanwhile, 40 million Americans face eviction. It's, uh, it's not great, <laughs> this fact that these people are becoming astronomically wealthy to the point where these are just numbers that I, we, we can't even fathom. I've been watching those TikTok rice videos where that guy puts these piles of rice together to try to demonstrate how much money Jeff Bezos has. And I feel like that's the closest I've come to being able to understand how much money this is. But we just can't conceive of it. And I feel like it's sort of similar to what's happening with the COVID death is there's so many people dying. It's very hard to like hold that that value in your mind because it's so large. But we do understand that this is detrimental to society at large. And there's a lot of yeah. clamor right now to tax the rich. You keep hearing that and seeing it on all social media. But I got news for you. That's never going to happen. Because the billionaires are the ones who control society. Governments are bought and paid for by all of them. The only real way to stop this from happening actually lies with us. These people are rich because we give them our money. When you use Amazon, for example, you're giving money directly to Jeff Bezos. And because mm -hmm. of COVID, because we are all in quarantine, we're ordering more shit off Amazon, it enriches him. Facebook is the same thing, which is also Instagram. They own, Facebook owns Instagram. When you use these platforms, they get advertising revenue and that money goes straight to Mark Zuckerberg. Are you going to delete Amazon and Instagram? No, I use them as much as anyone else. I'm not saying that there's a way around this. This is just simply how society is. The rich will always be incredibly rich. The poor will always be incredibly poor. This is the nature of humanity. It's fundamental competition. Yeah, but the gap is increasing too. 
you used to have CEO to worker pay in 1965 was 20 to one. And now it's 320 to one. This gap has, has gotten much wider. It's going to continue to grow because resources are going to start dwindling. The world is getting bad in terms of global warming. And the more money you have, the more insulated you will be from any catastrophe that is about to befall the human species. You're only going to see rich people hoarding more and more and more of this. And as everybody wants more money so they can inoculate themselves against the horrors we're about to face, you'll see politicians being bought off more easily. You'll see the people who actually control the fundamental parts of society being paid off, being lackeys essentially for billionaires. I mean, we're seeing it already, obviously, with Trump and all the other authoritarian governments. I feel like they're really about money and poison also. They love poison. That's like their other main tenet. <laughs> It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> so you might be asking yourself, well, how does this relate to The Bachelor? You're talking about billionaires. You're talking about these ultra-rich people <laughs> that control the world. Well, I got news for you. The people who run Disney, ABC, Warner Brothers, they are in that tier of ultra-rich people who are making a product called The Bachelor. And when we watch it, they are able to charge other companies insane amounts of money for advertising and they get rich. We are helping them get rich by watching the show they make. Yeah, there was this uh, NBC article from last year that detailed how the CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, and Disney now owns ABC, he made $66 million that past year, which is more than a thousand times the median salary of all Disney employees, which is just absolutely insane can you possibly justify that what one person is doing is worth a thousand times more than their people that are helping them so in the end we have to accept that we are to blame to some degree for this because if we didn't watch these shows if we didn't use these products none of these people would be billionaires but instead pace case and i not only watched the show we put together a fucking three-hour podcast talking about the goddamn show. It's crazy, and it can't be helped. Yeah. Like, at this point, this is so compulsive to me. Uh, yeah, no, we couldn't possibly do less than three hours in this episode. We'll see what the, what the total runtime is, but I think you guys are going to like it. I think you're going to like what we've done. You know, you, we have this cognitive dissonance at work as well, where... I know that I'm funneling money to Bob Iger, who's making 1,400 times what his employees make, but I'm still doing it. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I guess you just succumb. You just say, well, fuck it. That's the way the world is. If I can amuse myself for three hours and think about The Bachelor instead of thinking about the fact that we are all owned by about 30 people who make every decision facing humanity and none of them are making altruistic decisions it's all for self-benefit it's all for them to be okay as the world collapses as long as we can understand that and then move on we can talk about bachelor nation news i mean that's just self-care this is Bachelor Nation News. First up in Bachelor Nation News, 
The news we all knew was coming for months and months. Becca and Margaret have broken up. We've all known this is the case for about a month, but they finally notarized it for us with an Instagram post. Becca posted a post on Instagram, but there is civil war playing out in the comments, so she turned them off. Uh, Garrett still has yet to post about it, but she posted this image. It's her and Garrett back to back sitting on this rock overlooking a lake. She says, with a heavy heart, Garrett and I have come to the love and conclusion to end our engagement. All that we will share is that we still have nothing but love and respect for one another, even though we've decided to go down our own separate paths. While we've arrived at this point, it doesn't diminish the countless amazing memories made together. We hope that everyone can allow us grace, respect, and the time to heal our hearts as we navigate this next chapter in our lives. Um, She talked about this in the last five minutes of the Bachelor Happy Hour podcast um, from September 1st, uh, if you want to check that out as well. And I don't know if this says more about where I am, but when I listened to it, I started tearing up, even though it's really good that she's broken up with this MAGA person. (laughs) Wait, you started tearing up because you're sad for her for the breakup? I mean, she's tearing up and like... A lot of people are going through shit right now, and it just, (laughs) it's definitely more about me than this, than their breakup. (laughs) Let's just say that. (laughs) I don't know what overcame me. She should not be with this horrible, horrible man, and we should be rejoicing, but. Well, congratulations to Becca on the breakup, and congratulations to Becca on something else, which is the second piece of Bachelor Nation news this week. Becca Kufrin has moved to Los Angeles, and she welcomed herself with a post on Instagram. This move to Los Angeles is something many, many players do. Usually it takes place almost right after their appearance on the show. It took Becca (laughs) a little longer, but she made it here, and she's going to give it her all and hopefully wind up on a TV show or something or another podcast. Who knows? But welcome to Los Angeles, Becca. I hope you can handle the heat. Speaking of bringing the heat, our third piece of Bachelor Nation news is that Raven this week came out with this post. It was in time for the Nick Goat episode. Everyone is bringing up this content, trying to be like, oh, remember me? This is my week to reshine. And hers was probably the best one. She posted this image of a yellow piece of notebook paper. And she said, I used to trade information in exchange for no interviews for a day. And it's this long, elaborate um, diagram with sort of tree branches leading from different names. It's the people that hate Corinne versus the people that don't hate Corinne. And then it's what everyone's opinions are on D'Lo as well. Is she fake? And she says, this is the night I stayed up with producers to map out the drama because they weren't sure of the links of drama. All the girls were asleep. I thought this was an excellent play. To me, it it fit right in line with when we're analyzing the season. Raven is kind of the colorful narrator. She's narrating the whole season with her little charming phrases. Um, 
And now you can see why she was a producer's darling. She played to that audience expertly. We've never seen a document like this that lets us behind the fucking curtain to such a degree. If what she's saying is true, that this notebook she's showing to us was an artifact from her time in season, and that she did in fact stay up late one night when all the other girls were asleep to have a conversation with the fucking producers mapping out who hates who, how they can twist them, how they can manipulate them. If this is true, we have to assume something like this happens at least every season and that you have certain players who are essentially moles for the producer, who are very clearly playing a game. When you look at this document, I mean, it's elaborate to say the fucking least. This flowchart that has multiple parts kind of divided into a Corinne half and a Daniel Lombard half. And you have things in here like D'Lo is fake crew, and then it goes to some players, and it beats out their arguments. D'Lo is fake, but should not be stoned. <laughs> Raven, Sarah, Jasmine. D'Lo is fake and should be stoned. Danielle M., Whitney, Taylor, Vanessa, Josephine, Astrid. <laughs> and it goes down this list. Please find this if you can and look at this. We're not going to go through it all, but... It's fucking astounding that this exists. And you can now imagine that the whole thing is a game. She can't be the only one doing this. The producers are probably going to other people as well. She may just be the only one who had a physical artifact from this event. Just blew my fucking mind to see this. Uh, This post is available on the Bachelor subreddit. Our next piece of Bachelor Nation news is that Jeff Holm the ring winner of Emily Maynard's Bachelorette season, is now dating Francesca Farrago from Too Hot to Handle. Jeff Holm only has 138,000 Instagram followers. Francesca has 4.8 million Instagram followers. This is such a huge play for Jeff Holm. I just shout out to Jeff. This is a huge accomplishment. I mean, you're in the 100,000 Instagram followers uh, space and you're linking up with the essentially the winner of Too Hot to Handle. It's almost like a Tyler Cameron yes. dating a Gigi Hadid or something like that. It's not quite the same scale, but Francesca certainly eclipses mm-hmm. all Bachelor players with her Instagram following. She's a bigger dating reality star than anyone in the Bachelor world, and he has stepped outside of it to latch onto her. So yeah, congrats to Jeff. Moving on up. Speaking of moving on up. (laughs) Yes. Our next piece of Bachelor Nation news involves the next step I want to take with the hit gallery. (laughs) This past week on the Bachelor Goat episode with Nick Vial, there was a little moment where Nick Vial was on his Zoom meeting with the Dark Lord and the Dark Lord says, hey, we delivered you something. And Nick produces this item that Mm -hmm. is wrapped. He unwraps it and he reveals it to us, the audience. And it's a fucking painting commissioned by the dark lord himself depicting the dark lord and nick vial from his season when nick vial has a log over his shoulders and he's trudging through the snow rocky style and dilich has a timer right he's like his training coach yeah it's a parody of rocky i need the painting i'm just gonna say (laughs) that i need to have that painting if anybody out there has access to it or can get a hold of nick vial if he's willing to sell it i'd be happy to donate money to charity whatever i need it 
I don't understand how you think it's possible you're going to get that painting. That painting is all he has. It was given to him as a substitute for inviting him on Dancing with the Stars or whatever these these big prize ticket items, these big ticket items that some of the GOAT interviewees have been getting via Zoom. Hell no. That painting was a fuck you straight from DLH to Nick Vial. And if Nick Vial can get a little press off of selling it for charity, it's a fuck you right back to DLH. Mm -hmm. I think he would be very interested in doing that and I'm happy to help facilitate. Just putting that out there. If anybody can get to Nick Vial, if Nick Vial himself is listening. How much money would you be willing to donate to charity for this painting? I guess it depends on the charity. Hmm. It's like a Republican super PAC. It's QAnon. <laughs> Speaking of MAGA super PACs, our next <laughs> bit of Bachelor Nation Gorgeous. news involves Donald Trump Jr.? That's right. What? I invoked his name. We just got news this week from Higher Learning, the podcast that Rachel Lindsay does with Van Lathan, that she, at her new job, as a reporter at Extra, is going to be fucking interviewing Donald Trump Jr. These worlds are being brought together now in plain view for us. Rachel Lindsay, I'll say again, is going to be interviewing Donald Trump Jr. for Extra. I don't know when this interview is coming out, relatively soon, I would guess, but we're now seeing the Bachelor and political world merging right before our fucking eyes. She and Van talk about her decision to do this. I mean, she's very new at that job, so it is very strange to me that she's being asked to do it, and it makes me feel deeply concerned that she is being used in this way to make it look like Donald Trump Jr. is some... I don't know exactly what what the end goal is. I mean, the end goal is he's trying to sell his book, but... And because it's done through Extra, he's not coming on their podcast... They're doing it on fucking yeah, extra. Exactly. This is where Billy Bush works. She is going to be completely hampered. Even if she asks any tough questions, that ain't making the fucking cut. Yeah, she's not going to have any control of the edit. Ugh. I hope it does not uh, help him sell books. And before we wrap up Bachelor Nation news, I just want to issue a brief correction. Last week, we talked about the getaways, this group of guys who didn't make it on Claire's season, but have formed an Instagram account about their goings on. They're trying to make this Instagram play as these rejects. And apparently there was a predecessor to the getaways. Uh, someone let us know that on Ari's season, there was a group called the Rose Girls and they had an Instagram active from January to May 2018. And that was Ari's rejects as well. Interesting. So it's a storied tradition. Mm-hmm. If you're a reject, to get together with the other rejects, make an Instagram account, and see what you can do. Yeah, we'll see if they can go further than the, the Rose Girls. Good luck to them. And that does it for this week's edition of Bachelor Nation News. Now we're going to do a segment that we've only done once before, <laughs> I think. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Uh-huh. It's called... Game of Roses Predictions. As I'm sure you're well aware, 
We predicted Matt James would be the first Black Bachelor before he was ever even cast on Claire's season, months and months before. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure you're well aware, we predicted Dale Moss would win Claire's season by just looking at his fucking Instagram account. Yes, we did. We are 100% accurate in all of our predictions about Bachelor Nation. We have mathematical proof of that. So what we're about to say next will absolutely 100% happen at some point in the near future. This prediction is that noted Republican spokesperson Tommy Laren and Garrett Yergurian, a.k.a. Mag Garrett, will not only begin dating, but they will marry and produce an unholy offspring that will destroy humanity. This <laughs> is how the Antichrist is born. It's prophecy. <laughs> 100% uh-huh. accurate prophecy. We have not issued a prediction that has been incorrect so far, and therefore this will happen. Everybody thinks it's going to be global warming or some kind of gigantic World War III nuclear holocaust. Uh-uh-uh. It's going to be the Yergorian Lauren child. Everyone keeps sending us these articles about how she's supposedly dating Jay Cutler. It's like, no. she's She has... Got, she has received the bat signal from Yagurian. She's received the American flag emoji. And if she dates him, this elevates her to a bachelorette status. So I fully believe even if she is with Jay Cutler, she will dump him for my Garrett. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, Jay Cutler has millions and millions of dollars more than Yagurian <laughs> are. He is an NFL quarterback. He has a lot of things going for him. The things he doesn't have going for him are he's not a fucking bachelor. And we know Tomy likes her some bachelor. Mm -hmm. And we also know that there is this thing of collecting bachelors kind of in the popular culture. We've seen it with some other famous women who start dating guys from the bachelor or even bachelors themselves. And I think Tomy has had her eye on that as a trophy. For a long time. She dated Chase McNary, noted MAGA idiot. Exactly. And so Garrett is a step up. He was a fucking ring winner. I think it's going to happen. Look, I don't know about the Antichrist. That may happen. But I do know <laughs> for real. Wait, that's not guaranteed? The Antichrist? Uh, it's like a 75, 25. <laughs> do you even believe in the original Christ? I don't. <laughs> You're like, the original Christ wasn't real, but the Antichrist is definitely going to be real. Absolutely. I believe that. <laughs> now, look, I'm, I'm not actually making any kind of supernatural prophecy here, but I am saying they will start dating very soon. Mm-hmm. And I do believe they will be married within, let's give it, two years. Because also, Magarrett, although he is not the sharpest tool in the shed, I do believe he understands he has a very limited window of famous women that he can date. And I think he got a taste of that with Becca Kufrin, and he's going to want it again. And again, on that right side <laughs> of the fucking aisle, you, you don't have a lot of choice. Tommy Laren is probably no. his best bet. I mean, she's his dream girl. He was liking uh, those offensive posts that held her up as this beauty icon years ago. So there you have it. That's our prediction. 100% accurate. Look for that to happen. And don't be surprised when it does, because we told you it would. (laughs) 
And now we've come to that time where we analyze all of the parasocial play this week from anyone in our beloved game, and we zero in on the play that really stood out. This is... The parasocial play, 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 play of the week. This week saw a flurry of parasocial play from a wide variety of players. Raven, of course, as we spoke about in Bachelor Nation News, posting this thing on Facebook, letting us behind the curtain. It was a staggering play. Nick Vial also made a strong post this week. It was his GOAT episode. He had to come out with a flourish of his own. And he posted this image of him at the beach wearing this dumb hat. And there's a woman whose face is cut off. And there's a little heart emoji covering what I'm guessing is an indicative tattoo that would identify who this woman is. But he's implying he has a secret young girlfriend we of course had becca's breakup posts very strong parasocial play letting all of her fans know that big things are happening in her life big changes and she's free from mcgarrett we had dale moss posting an instagram of him looking at his phone there's a glow about him he's saying he is back from his break from social media and god has a plan trust it Ashley I, not to be outdone, posted some IG stories this week about her first seven days off the pill. It's SpawnCon for a product called Natural Cycles, which is an app that you can use when you're trying to get pregnant, tells you when you're ovulating, when's the best time to be having sex, when's the best time to not be having sex. By the way, that is something we predicted too, is there would be an Instagram post for the sparkle in Jared's eye, which is essentially what this is. They're basically taking the fetus game to the attempts at pregnancy game. Yeah. I don't know how much further in the timeline of conceiving a child (laughs) you can go back, but they're going to find it. Whatever the first possible moment is to monetize. There's an Instagram for the condoms that they've thrown out. (laughs) Uh, We also had Hannah B. and Heather Martin at Cal A.V. Health Spa posting a kind of four horsemen of the horsewomen of the apocalypse light. Only in their Instagram stories, no grid posts, but sort of a, you know, a nice homage. We've got Bree Stoss and Chris Tellum Watson doing a lot of SpawnCon for a company called JW Holm, quality leather bags and accessories. So much so that they've kind of become their spokespeople. They're in multiple posts on their grid. They're in their stories. We're seeing them get a kind of surprising Leg up from just an appearance on Listen to Your Heart, which now seems like it was 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, We also had an excellent SpawnCon blast for Schwinn scooters. They've tapped into the Bachelor world. We have Ashley and Jared riding around on them. Amanda Stanton, Jason Tardick and Caitlin. Everyone's scooting. But the winner of the parasocial play of the week had to, of course, be... Jade Roper, a.k.a. Jade Tolbert, a.k.a. Jade of Jade and Tanner. This week, she started posting in her Instagram stories a name bracket. She is pregnant with their third child, and they are allowing their Instagram followers to determine the name of this child by selecting 
a series of names and then pitting them against each other every day. So there's two names pop up in our story. You vote on which one you like, and that name moves forward in the bracket. Right now, the name Reed beat the name Cohen to move on to the second round, and the name <laughs> Wesley beat the name James to move on to the next round. The other head-to-head matchups... Thank you for these updates. <laughs> the other head-to-head matchups we have are Dean versus Roper, Callum versus Rivers, Jack versus Atticus, Forrest versus Porter, Landry versus Baker, and Connor versus Thatcher. Who's going to take the top spot? We don't know. But what Jade has expertly done here is involve her fans in a level of not only her life, but the life of this child that they don't even quite understand how insidious it is. Because once you feel like you have had some hand in what this kid's name is going to be, you're going to follow that kid's Instagram account. You're going to watch that kid grow up. You're going to be looking at all the spawn con. This is a way to generate a massive audience for this kid the day it is born. And I'll be very curious to see what its Instagram following is like. It's also continuing this sort of sports metaphor. They even call it their sweet 16 of the top 16 names. And it's very interesting, especially because they... You would think they'd want to distance themselves from the sports thing after the fantasy football DraftKings debacle. Even though they did this for their second child already, I somehow missed this, and it's such a good idea. It's a way to funnel the people into your next kid's Instagram and therefore their spawn con. This is my question, though. What if it gets down in the end to the two names that are vying for this kid's name, and one of them they really don't like? One mm-hmm. of them is just like, fuck, we hope they don't win that one. Then they just lie. They, You think they manufacture the numbers? I feel like it would be super easy to Photoshop. I don't know what the poll results are looking like. Will but... that be a scandal? Jade and Tanner cheated on their <laughs> baby name bracket, just like they did DraftKings. Yeah. It was supposed to be James, but it was Reed. <laughs> I like that they're all like these like butch fucking names, just like Tanner, where it's like a kid who shoots guns or something. Thatcher and one of them is fucking Roper. That's her maiden name. Yeah, I'm Roper. Ropey. How do what do you call that kid? Rope. I don't know. Well, we wish them luck. Whatever the case, this was an astounding yeah. play. I was thoroughly blown away by it. The level of parasocial engagement that they are getting out of their fan base as a result of this play is top-notch. That's why we gave them play of the week. I mean, king and queen of paradise, holding it up. They started the baby game. I mean, one day maybe one of these kids will catch up to Alessi, but it's still strong play. Look, we still haven't seen the best fetus. We still haven't seen that. That's going to be the Ayakinetti high bond child. That creature will dominate <laughs> that creature. the pre-life Instagram game. I can't wait. Well, that's it. That was our parasocial play of the week. Thank you guys for listening to Gore State of the World. Thank you for going through Bachelor Nation News with us. And of course, thank you for indulging this parasocial play of the week. Now, it is time for Pace Case and I to go into the pit and discuss the detrimental effects of our fandom of this show and then convince ourselves to keep watching. This is... <laughs> Screams from the Pit! This week, my Scream from the Pit involves an excursion outside of my home, as many of our Screams do. We were talking about this last week, that most of the time, our Screams come at moments when we are with other people. 
other people who don't quite understand what the pit is, why we're in it, mm-hmm. and how this show has affected us. It's because it doesn't feel like screams when it's just you and me to each other. It's just talking. <laughs> Our screams have just become a language for us. Yeah. This week I got invited to a friend's backyard to just go hang out, chill out. Haven't seen these people in a while. And on the drive over there, I told myself, I'm not going to talk about The Bachelor at all. I'm just going to see if I can do it. And I'm going to hang out with my friends and I'm not going to bring it up. Some of them watch The Bachelor. Some of them don't. They're all aware of it. And they, all of these people know my obsession with it. I made this demand of myself. You can do this. Just Mm -hmm. don't talk about The Bachelor. Plenty of other stuff to talk about. So I didn't. I didn't bring it up for maybe an hour. Mm -hmm. Maybe two hours. It was a long time. It felt strange. I will say it felt strange, but I was able to do it. And I was kind of proud of myself. Then, of course, they start talking about what they're watching during the quarantine. And I'm just silent. They're talking about The Sopranos and Breaking Bad. A few of them had never seen these or somebody, one of my friends hadn't seen the final episode or final season of Sopranos. So they were watching that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I saw all those shows. I can talk about those shows. I have things to contribute to this conversation. (laughs) So I'm just talking about them and, you know, it's flowing. Everything's real fucking nice. Then one of my friends fucking starts bragging about getting through a season of 90 Day Fiance in three days, as though this was some accomplishment that we should be proud of or (laughs) that we should take a moment to accept as difficult. And I fucking snapped. I was just in my head. I was like, you think that's binging, motherfucker? I did six seasons of The Bachelor in five consecutive days, and it's like a big bang goes off in my fucking head. All this pressure of not talking about The Bachelor, of keeping it tamped down, just fucking explodes, creating a new universe of only Bachelor conversation that my friends are now forced to exist in (laughs) as I'm just going off. Well, we we do a thing called hyper-binging. We watch Bachelor seasons on two times speed. That way you can see all the subtle nuance of it. Did you know Dark Lord Harrison didn't wear a black suit until season four? Did you know this? And it's just like... I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just fucking like on autopilot. All of it is coming out of me Uh in this fucking torrent. And I realized in that moment, it wasn't a scream from the pit. It was a scream to get back in the pit. I was essentially telling my friends, let me in the fucking pit because that's my home. I can't be outside of it anymore. I can't even fucking sit in somebody's backyard and just casually talk about Breaking Bad for more than 30 minutes before I lose my fucking mind and start talking about hyper binging and the number of tings in episode four of season six. (laughs) Which you'll find out later this episode. (laughs) That, it it doesn't surprise me at all. I think maybe, maybe the remedy is you got to give yourself like smaller a smaller period of time as a goal to start with, you know, only not talking about it for a half hour, maybe, or an hour. I think that might help. I went too hard, you're saying. I expected too much of myself. Yeah, you tried to not talk about it for three hours with a bunch of people who work in TV. I mean, come on. I have to somehow become reacclimated to normal social conditions outside the pit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that reminds me of our conversation with Grace Ann Parks, where she was like, I'm home once we were being like, welcome to the pit. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what they say to you when you enter Burning Man. They're like, welcome home. (laughs) I mean, I'm proud of you for that first 90 minutes. That's hard. There was a point about 45 minutes in where I was like, hey, I got this. Like, yeah, in my brain, I'm still calculating (laughs) rose quotients and numbers of kisses and shit. I'm still thinking about it, but I don't have to say Mm -hmm. it out loud. Yeah. I thought I could fucking handle it. And the thing that set me off was the hyper binging. When somebody said, like, we binged a season of 90 Day Fiance in three days, I was just like, and? Why did you, why did you want to compete with their level of binging? Because binging had become a part of the conversation that, like, in quarantine, all we do is binge. All we do is binge. And I was just, like, in my mind thinking, you're not binging. You're just watching a TV show. <laughs> what Pace Case and I are doing is binging. <laughs> We're not doing anything but watching I mean, the show. We're binging with a purpose. I mean, if they're watching a season of 90 Day Fiance, I don't know how many episodes that is, but in three days, I mean, that is a lot of TV, especially if you're not like creating any ancillary product. Hey, look, maybe. I'm just telling you my reaction. <laughs> and I knew that in the moment, even as I was having it, I knew It was my scream from the pit because I could hear myself talking and I was just like, oh God. Do you think that you blew in order to have a scream? Like my brain subconsciously forced this interaction on me just so I could have this for the podcast? No, I don't. Because I was actively trying not to do this (laughs) and could not help myself. Well, my scream from the pit is, of course, somewhat similar because you and I, our our activity patterns line up. Almost one-to-one. In the pit, we all become one person. (laughs) I'm not... (laughs) I'm not doing much outside of the pit at this point. What am I doing when I'm not watching Bachelor? You might think that I wouldn't be watching reality TV dating shows in those few brief moments of respite, but you'd be wrong. I've been watching Love Island for fun. I watched the rest of the UK, and then I watched Australia, and now I'm watching the US COVID edition that takes place in Vegas, which is fascinating um, for a whole host of reasons. But I just think that the stakes of it have been amplified immensely when it's like the only human contact you can have. And if you're kicked off, you don't, you have to go back to COVID world. I digress. <laughs> Uh, this <laughs> you're starting another pit. Jesus Christ. I'm creating new pits. I know. I well, this used to be fine. This used to be fine that I was watching these other shows. Like I used to chill out, uh, eat my chipotle, smoke my weed. That's like my dream chill out mode. Uh, watching my personal documents and not not keeping any track of data, and I'm escaping the reality of these many simultaneous apocalypses. I'm in the Bay Area right now, so there's also the forest fires going on as well. But something has changed, and it has ruined my chill-out time. And I think it's because we were hyper-binging the dark seasons all in one week. And I'm watching Vegas Love Island in my happy place, and something happens. These two people, they go to kiss, and I felt this deep kick, this punch in my gut that I needed to record this statistic, and I'm not covering this show for anything. This is supposed to be my escape, but 
now I'm watching it and I keep getting this gut punch every time someone is kissing or crying or they play a PTC and it's ruining this escape for me. I have this urge to grab my computer and tally these moments. It's like basically Pavlovian at this point and it needs to stop. And I, I'm trying to like tamp that down, but it's not working. Don't tamp it down. <laughs> it doesn't need to stop. You're evolving. I, I can't be recording data my whole life. That can't be my whole life. I need at least my reality dating show that's just the chill out time. We know this. The only way out is through. You're going through it right now. Eventually, you will get to a point where you record no data, where you watch The Bachelor literally never. We will get to that point. The way you said that phrase to me feels like someone being like, we're going to have a vaccine. This is going to, we're going to return to normal at some point. It, like, I know, sure, maybe that's true, but it doesn't feel true. Not now, because we're fucking in it. But I'm telling you, also, the skills we're learning by hyper binging don't just apply to The Bachelor. They apply to everything in our lives. We are becoming better. Through this process, as human beings, as observers of the world and media and all of these kinds of things, I commend you for what has happened to you. <laughs> of course you do. You, you want to get back in the pit. Your, your screams are just to get back in it. In my eyes, what you're telling me uh-huh. is evidence that the person I'm now talking to is Pace Case 2.0. <laughs> You have leveled up. I don't know where our leveling ends. It will at some point, but I can feel it changing me too, the hyper binging. And I embrace that change. I don't, I don't like that it destroys certain social interactions with my friends. <laughs> but, You're like, I don't like that it's ruined all of my friendships, but other than that... It hasn't ruined it. My friends, to some degree, indulge it, I guess. They find it funny or maybe they don't. I don't fucking know. But I do know that my ability to objectively analyze media as a result of what we're doing is fucking, at this point, off the charts. And we're not even done. We're only through season seven. Have you started hyper-binging any other material? No. I'm exclusively Bachelor all the time now. I'm living in it. You're not watching anything else? I watch anime sometimes at night to sleep. I have been watching Big Brother on two times speed right now Mm. as well. See? It's a good show for that. You're using your pit skills in other areas of the world, and I commend you. And my brain is filled with mush now. Meaningless statistics. How dare you? (laughs) To say such a thing and to say it in the pit? I meant the stats for Love Island and Big Brother, not... Not for our beloved game, obviously. Okay, okay, fair enough. Those have much meaning. Well, for what it's worth, I thank you for your service in the pit. And I know that we have a long road ahead, but we are now firmly on it. There is no turning back. The only way out is through. Indeed. And speaking of going through, what we have prepared for you now is a very special segment. This is going to be a history of our beloved game unlike any you have ever heard. It is long, we will warn you, but it is rich with detail and information (laughs) that is invaluable in terms of growing a greater understanding of our beloved game. It was eye-opening to us in ways we did not see coming, and we are very proud 
to present for you now this installment of Welcome to the history of our beloved game. Clues. Mm-hmm. I've been on a mission. I'm trying to find Ooh. the perfect t-shirt. Yeah. Um, because it's spring. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to peacock. Luckily, the perfect t-shirt does exist. And you can find it at Skims. From cropped silhouettes to long sleeve layering tees, there's a style for everyone. You guys know how excited I was that Skims became one of our sponsors for this podcast. They have great basics and foundations. I got the boyfriend t-shirt in onyx. That's kind of a dark black color. And the cotton jersey long sleeve t-shirt in kyanite, which is kind of like a blue green. And they're both so comfortable. It's basically like you are wearing nothing. Great for free spirit types. Well, for all the free spirits out there right now, you can shop the Skims t-shirt shop at skims.com. Now available in sizes XXS through 4X. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcasts in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Again, that's Skims. Game of Roses is sponsored by BetterHelp. Clues, uh, we all carry around different stressors, big and small. And if you keep them all bottled up, it can affect you negatively. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. You might be taking care of your physical body, but are you taking care of that beautiful mind, Clues? Yes. I have benefited from therapy greatly in the past. Uh, It has helped me get through stressful experiences, manage boundaries, learn coping skills. You know, the the whole premise of life is is kind of a, a, it's a lot to undertake and therapy can help with that. Well, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire. Then you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists literally at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Game of Roses today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Game of Roses. Clues, it is springtime. It is the off season. It is gore girl summer. The weather's getting warmer. Thank Dark Lord Palmer. And it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and cowls and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul, get those staple pieces, and I found quince. Now I have a lineup of timeless pieces keeping me looking effortlessly chic year after year. I got the cotton modal scoop neck tee. It is so cute. It is literally the first thing I reach for in my dresser when all my clothes are washed. You know those special items. If you are not like Clues, who only wears one outfit. I'm Quince head to toe at this point. I'm a Quince boy. (gasps) I'm a source boy, Quince boy. Let's you got no go. idea. I'm wearing Quince t-shirts, Quince pants, Quince long sleeve t-shirts, Quince pants, Quince sweaters, Quince pants. I'm Quinced. <laughs> Just call me Quinced. King Quinces, Okay. they call me. 
I love Quince. Okay, Quince. Uh, get warm weather ready with Quince. Be a Quince king yourself or Quince queen. Go to Quince.com slash roses for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash roses to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash roses. This installment of the history of our beloved game is, simply put, one of the most important things you will ever listen to in your life. (laughs) Indeed. And we have, of course, the dark seeker, Grace Ann Parks, to thank for it. Without her hard work, without her diligence, this would not be possible. We would not know the dark secrets of seasons two through seven. But as it now stands... Pace Case and I have just finished an incredible journey. We have watched six seasons of The Bachelor on two times speed in five days, and we have meticulously recorded every event that transpired within them. Not only that, we have made significant strides in our understanding of the game as a result of seeing these dark secrets, and we are extremely excited to share them all with you right now. Yeah, we basically... If we were not watching Dark Seasons this week, we were unconscious. That's commitment. What would you say your main your main takeaways from watching the Dark Seasons were? For me, the main one was there there was not as much racism as I thought there would be, probably due to the fact that there were so few players of color in all these seasons, but the misogyny is blatant and rampant. I would argue that there is a lot of racism in these seasons, specifically because of the almost zero amount of players of color. And even when there were a couple players of color on a season, they would be gone by episode two. I added it up. The dark seasons are 87.5% white. That being said, as we'll get into, we also saw some extremely high level play from players of color, one of whom in my mind, is in the conversation for the greatest of all time. She may have beaten Nick Vial in my mind, which I can't believe I'm even saying, but I was unaware of her, and to see what she did, yeah, we're going to get to it. I don't want to give too much away, but holy fucking shit. Yeah, she's probably one of the main takeaways from watching these as well. Absolutely. And the fact that this phase was so experimental. I had no idea the things that they did with the show during this time period. My main takeaway is that it's kind of restructuring the way I'm thinking about the history of the game in my mind. Because we had been searching for these seasons for so long without finding them, I had kind of like relegated them to their own era within the Bachelor history. And now I'm seeing that's not true, that there's an era that starts at season four and we haven't yet progressed Mm -hmm. past season seven and watching. So I don't know when that era ends, but I do see that season one through three are an era. Season four begins a new era. We'll see when that one ends. And so for me, it was historically very interesting to see these seasons because it there are just integral pieces of the history of the game that we wouldn't have known otherwise. And they're huge, huge pieces of how the game formed over the years. So that for me was the biggest takeaway. In addition to the dark season stuff, like <laughs> oh, the yeah. literal things that the dark secrets that we were like, this is why they don't want us to see these seasons. Those things do exist. We will be talking about those, but yeah. For me, the biggest takeaway was kind of the um, just getting to see the evolution of the game and really seeing like season four is where it started to kick into this other gear, where Mm -hmm. it started to move toward what we now know. But before season four, there were some other seasons. (laughs) Let's get into it. 
let's get into it. So we, we also should mention, we did a series of History of Our Beloved Game that covers the entirety of season one. Mm-hmm. We did literally every episode of it, breaking each one down. And we wish we could do that with all of these seasons. And maybe we will at some point in the future. But today, what we're going to do is just go through seasons two through seven, the main highlights. And all of the DSMs, the dark season moments that we could track all of them together are why we think that these seasons are the dark seasons, why you can't find them anywhere because there is some crazy, crazy offensive shit in these. And with that said, let's begin with season season two, two, the the rise rise of of bachelor Bachelor nation. Nation. Now season two is coming off the heels of season one. Obviously it was a wildly successful show. And in the first episode of season two, We open it in a completely new way. The first episode of season one was limo exits. They were all blandies. People came out of the limos, shook his hand and walked inside and that was it. The first episode of season two is completely different. It's not night one. It's a casting episode. They let us behind the scenes and we even see producers on camera for the first time doing interviews, essentially doing confessionals or in the moments, as they're called in the Bachelor world, where a player is talking directly to camera. We literally see Mike Fleiss and Lisa Levinson, who is the executive producer that the show Unreal is based on, speaking directly to us, the audience, talking about the casting process, what kind of women they're looking for. And this is how this season starts. They paint the bachelor crown as a prize to be won, and they say that they've narrowed it down to five bachelors, and they show us each one of them, and they're building up to the end of this episode, which will be a reveal of which one of these guys is actually going to be your bachelor. So they're painting even that as this kind of contest to be won. We get this series of clips of famous people being interviewed about their fandom of The Bachelor. This includes Jerry Springer, Dennis Franz, George Lopez, Mario Lopez, Daisy Fuentes, Kathy Griffin, Ali Landry, Andrew Carey. So you're starting to see that not only is there this celebrity fandom of the show, but the show wants to promote that as this thing. This is part of why this season is the rise of Bachelor Nation. You're seeing people going on to become famous. You're seeing famous people watching the show. And you're also seeing non-famous people watching the show. We get some viewing parties in this first fucking episode. You see literal businessmen in suits in bars watching it, and you see women in their living rooms drinking wine and watching it. Somebody at one of these bars says, literally, verbatim, there's the Super Bowl, and then there's The Bachelor. This is season (laughs) two. They are already presenting it as a brand new sport, something on the level of the fucking Super Bowl. The idea is in the fucking It is crazy to talk about something like it's this tradition when this is only season two. We have Alex and Amanda from season one are brought back for an interview. They begin the notion here of the Bachelor family, that the lives of these people after the show are important and worth the audience continued interest and curiosity. And as we know, that's going to become a staple for the rest of the fucking 20 years that the show is on the air. They're going to bring back the couple, successful or not. And this, the ultimate kind of iteration of this is in the current Bachelor Goat series where they have the Zoom interviews with people. This is essentially the first one of those. And then at the end of the episode, they reveal who our Bachelor is going to be. It is a guy named Aaron Berge. 
He is a renaissance man, as they say. He can play the piano and do a variety of sporting activities. And he's also a banker from Missouri. And we get short intro videos of all the women that are going to be on his season. And that is it for the first episode. We see no limo exits. We don't even see the mansion. It's this weird kind of preseason presentation of how they are putting the show together, celebrities' viewpoints on the show, and really kind of trying to pump you up for what's about to happen. We start night one with DLH appearing in the backyard. They're in the same mansion as season one. They use the same shots. He's sort of wandering around the pool area, talking to camera. Don't seem to be changing much here. And DLH sits down with Aaron Berge, and we find out a little more about him. He talks about having a ruptured spleen and how this one-foot-in-the-grave experience brought his life into perspective. He's sort of loading this PTC for his season. And he specifically talks about the differences that he's going to bring to the table versus the first Bachelor, Alex Michelle. And he thinks he's not going to make the same mistakes that Alex Michelle made leading women on. But little does he know, this is the fucking Bachelor. That's literally what you have to do for the entirety of the show. Somehow he thinks he's going to be above it. We get the limo exits that night, and these are 25 women walking out of a limo, shaking his fucking hand and walking inside. There are no limo exits here. All Blandies. We still haven't seen that piece of the game yet, even a little bit. And 21 out of 25 of these players are white. That is 84%. And no player of color makes it past week two this season. The cocktails are the same as season one. They're all these group talks. There's no steals yet. Pretty standard. And we do have a return to a place called the Deliberation Room. They used this in season one. And this is something we no longer have in the game, but it still was here in season two. And it made a, a long run. It was around for a long time. And we'll start to see it weeded out in some of the later dark seasons. But here it is prominent. This is a room where DLH takes our bachelor and has some final conversations with him before rose ceremonies. One wall of this room is covered in framed photos of every remaining player. The bachelor is forced to look at these photos for a long time and pretend to be really making a difficult decision. At the end of the first rose ceremony, Bergie confirms exactly that idea by saying verbatim, it is the most difficult decision he has made in his life so far. This is night one, just eliminating some women he's talked to for about 20 minutes apiece, maybe. This is the most difficult decision he's ever made in his life so far. And that's how we end night one of season two. And we get into the regular season. We're still seeing, instead of date cards, we still have these date boxes where the women get a box that has some props that are related to the date and the list of the women who are on the date. And these first regular season dates are three group dates, just like season one, equally split between the 15 players, five on each. We get a play for time on one of these group dates where they go to a racetrack and they bet on horses. The winner gets to go up in a hot air balloon with him by herself for a little extra time. People are playing PTCs this season, but not as frequently as we're used to in the modern game. They're kind of garden variety, heartbreak, divorce, and much less frequent than we've become used to. And we get our first real hint of some of the darkness this season. (laughs) All of the women living in this mansion 
are kind of, I mean, I don't know if they're forced to do this, but it sure seems like they are. Because anytime we cut back to the mansion, all the women are in bikinis hanging out by the pool. Every time. And in this season, they introduce a new element to the backyard of the mansion, which is a trampoline. And we are given shots of these women jumping on a trampoline in bikinis, which was literally a bit used in the man show that was on TV around the same time. It was Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla had a show and every show would end with the credits rolling over slow motion, women, women in bikinis jumping on trampolines. So they have taken that element from the man show, or at least this kind of pervasive element of a fascination with women's boobs that was around in this time, I guess, because we're going to see it again and again and again in all of these seasons. It is a real hardcore preoccupation of the show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you gotta take the best part of the man show and put it in your show this time. Good fucking lord! Yeah, I would say there's. We'll we'll get into more of it, but the titty montages in the dark seasons are very pervasive. It's there's most of the zooms in this show are on tits and asses, um, but we are getting into the rose ceremonies. They're still doing the video messages, which are super boring, where each of the contestants are being like, I had a fun time on this group date. Yeehaw. Remember how it was a country theme date or whatever the fuck. They're super boring. I hate them, but they're still here. And we have Anandita Duta, our first player in the history of our beloved game to dump the bachelor here. She does it just as the rose ceremony is beginning, stops the proceedings and tells Aaron this isn't for her. She walks out and then Francis Dinglison does the exact same thing immediately after Anandita. And these are the last two players of color of the season. They leave at the second rose ceremony. So the entire rest of the season is all white. And this is something we literally never see in the modern game now. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody in a later phase leave of their own volition. It's become too hard. I don't want to hang out. Maybe they give an ultimatum. But somebody leaving in the second rose ceremony, just saying like, yeah, this ain't for me. Bye, dude. To leave with dignity. You just don't see it anymore. So few players leave with dignity, even in later rounds. It's, it's pretty unheard of. There's just too much possible benefit for staying longer in the game. You have to remember, yeah. this is fucking 2003. Instagram doesn't exist. There is no secondary career that you can build for yourself yet out of appearing on The Bachelor. I don't know. I just found it fascinating when she was like, yeah, excuse me, before you start the rose ceremony, (laughs) fuck you, I'm leaving. And then immediately after that, "Uh, excuse me, I'm leaving too. Fuck you. It was beautiful to watch. And then we have the, the friends of Aaron show up in week two to live in the house They did this in season one as well, but they're going to determine the one-on-ones from their interviews. And we have the standard dates start to emerge. We have the pretty woman date. We have the fireworks, etc. But there's also some huge dates here where they've clearly spent a shit ton of money. They have a private Disneyland date where they just have Disneyland to themselves. And then there's a private Hollywood Bowl date. I mean, we don't see anything of that caliber in the modern game. And then we get to the playoff rounds. This is Hometowns of Fantasy Suites, of course. And they adhere to a similar kind of structure that we're used to. 
Final Four get hometown dates. We have the development of the Auto Zone, something that was in season one here or there, but now it's a really formatted piece of the hometowns, which is when you leave the parents' house and you go out and you have a little minute by the car before the bachelor leaves. This is primarily now in the modern game where you raise a love level. Still, love levels are not being raised so much in these first iterations of the show, but definitely we're getting that little minute of them by the car to say their goodbyes and maybe get in a kiss or two. During a player named Brooke Smith's hometown, who ends up being second place this season, her aunt Dot says that she has a glow about her when she's with Aaron. And she couldn't have known this at the time, but the glow is going to become a main dramatic element of all hometown dates from this moment forward. It's the familial acceptance that their relative is seeing that the player has true feelings for The Bachelor, that they're coming in and they're super happy and they have this chemistry. And it's basically an implicit acceptance that this process works. And it's also at Brooke's hometown that we get a family with bowed heads. They pray to Jesus over dinner. I thought that the Christian era was something new. And certainly in the modern era, the Christian thing is very much front and center. It's way more than just bow your heads and pray over a meal. Now we have Jesus says it's okay for me to fuck in a windmill. But it was still in the game in season two. This shit has been there from the beginning. And we also now have, after Hometowns in this season, the fantasy suites occur in three separate locations, just like they did in season one. They're still adhering to that. And we are led to believe that they do, in fact, have sex. Then we come to the Women Tell All. It's not live yet. But the audience is featured here. For the first time, we actually get shots of the people sitting around behind the different women who show up for the Women Tell All, which is everyone from the season. They are all present except the (laughs) final two. And they're all in these huge couches in like stadium seating at this point. And Aaron is brought out to answer for his actions in some cases, but it's all pretty civil. They're still kind of trying to figure out what this Women Tell All thing is. Yes, it's a reunion show, but it hasn't quite gotten to the level where they can force them to fight and cry and do all the stuff that we are now used to. And in the finale, it's down to Helene Esterowitz and Brooke Smith. Helene goes to Springfield, Missouri to meet Aaron's family. Aaron's mom literally says The Bachelor is like a Miss America pageant, and she should know because she used to judge them. Pageants are Bachelor. They've been there from the beginning. These are the bones of it, the show. Jesus, The Bachelor. Pageants, The Bachelor. And as we're (laughs) going to see, NFL, The Bachelor. And as we're really going to see, Donald Trump. The Bachelor. It's all there from the beginning. All this shit we've been saying. As we're picking the pieces out of it in these modern seasons, when we really started the podcast and started to scrutinize it, I thought these things were recent. I thought this is just the Mm -hmm. direction of the show. No, no, no. This is the fucking (laughs) DNA of this fucking beast. It's always been there. And it always will. And we get this thing in the finale where the Bachelor, while he's having his meeting of the family with one player. The other player is back in Los Angeles, and she goes to Harry Winston Jewelers. Not yet Neil Lane, but she physically goes to the shop and selects a ring for herself, and then it's flipped. The other woman comes to meet the family, and the one who just met the family now goes to Harry Winston back in LA, and they look at rings. We still see at this point in the familial meetings 
the family tells Aaron Berge, we like both of them, but you should take some more time, have a long engagement. There is still a skepticism coming from the Bachelor's family about the nature of this, about him even being on the show in this early season. It hasn't yet reached that kind of 100% saturation in American culture where we just accept that this is great and we believe in you and we're so happy you're The Bachelor. That's not quite yet there from The Bachelor's family. No, but at this point, they, he also shows the final two women his restaurant trolleys. So it's like, oh, you're starting to see how The Bachelor is like, I can build my business this way. We didn't see any of that with Alex Michelle. And we get a kind of interesting moment here in season two where Aaron Berge goes to Harry Winston Jewelers to pick up the ring that was selected by whichever the ladies he might be proposing to. And we see him pull out a fucking checkbook and write a check for the ring. He makes a huge point of the fact that he paid for this. And to him, that is more romantic, that he didn't let the show do it for him. And the show is happy to champion that because it's a 4TRR moment in a way that we've never seen. Once real money's involved... Now that love is real. They tie the diamond, they tie monetary gain, financial stability to his desire to marry this woman. And the final rose ceremony, like all rose ceremonies, takes place back at the Malibu mansion. The winner, Helene, raises her love level to love level four. This is the first time we've seen this in the history of our beloved game, but... This is during the final rose ceremony, which is certainly not where we commonly see it today in the modern game, which is usually around hometowns, fantasy suites, playoff rounds. And this is our first bachelor proposal ever and will end up being our first broken engagement of many. There is no after the final rose at this point in the game. It is very interesting to look back at the love level raises of this season and all these dark seasons, really. The pacing of it isn't there yet because also the pacing of the show isn't there yet. We now have a 10 round, very strict structure of this show. In these dark seasons and many of these first seasons, it's like sometimes you had seven episodes, sometimes you had eight, sometimes there's an after the final row, sometimes there's not. They haven't really gotten that pattern down yet so it's very difficult for players to settle on when they should be raising love levels or not and we almost exclusively (laughs) see it only in the final rose ceremony at this point and we're mostly only seeing a love level raised to level level one you know i like you i have a crush on you that's about the extent of what most of the players do during these seasons but that's it for season two we've seen some movement here and there but primarily This is still just like season one. They're making a little more of the fact that The Bachelor is a huge phenomenon. They're starting to build the idea of the fandom by showing these people watching it at viewing parties, by having celebrities talk about it. Really what season two was about for me was exactly that, saying The Bachelor isn't just a show. It is this broader experience that is captivating America. It's really pushing it in that direction of this is the new American pastime. And we get to season three, uh, dubbed The The Real Real Millionaire. Millionaire. Dubbed that by us. Dubbed that by us. (laughs) The show does not call itself (laughs) The Real Millionaire. (laughs) But I mean, they basically do because we hear in countless promos that are within this season, DLH referring to Andrew Firestone as The Real Millionaire. Andrew Firestone is the bachelor of the third season. But we don't know this to start off. No, we don't. 
In fact, there are some other people who might be able to be Bachelor. Just like season two, they open the episode with a kind of preseason casting special, and we see the different guys that are being considered for season three Bachelor. And we enter <laughs> a kind of alternate Bachelor universe because one of these guys is named Dane Blanton. At the time, he was a 31-year-old. He lived in Santa Monica. He's a pro beach volleyball player who won a fucking Olympic gold medal. And he's black. And in this moment, in this first episode, you are just looking at this and thinking season three could have been the first black bachelor. He was like kind of a perfect fit for it. Mm -hmm. Tall, good looking guy, super fucking athletic, an Olympic gold medalist. But instead, they choose Andrew Firestone. He is literally as white (laughs) as a human being can be physically. Like nature won't allow a whiter person to exist. (laughs) He's the son of the Firestone family fortune, which is the tire company. Now they make wine. And DLH says a million times, we've got the real millionaire. Because this same year, there was another show called Joe Millionaire that was airing. The whole premise of Joe Millionaire was that there was this guy named Evan Marriott, who was, in quotes, Joe Millionaire, and he was dating women in a similar kind of bachelor way with a bunch of them, narrowing them down to the final selection. And not only he, but the show was telling all these women that he was a millionaire. And then in the end, it turns out he's not. He has to divulge that information and see (laughs) if that has any effect on the loves that he's developed. But Dark Lord Harrison is quick and frequent to point out that Andrew Firestone is a real millionaire. (laughs) And this idea of American elitism coming from this huge family that has generation after generation of wealth built on top of it, that this guy has never worked a fucking day in his life. He now makes wine in the Firestone family vineyards. That is the pinnacle of what a woman can hope for. He is the prize of all prizes. And they show in his intro package, like all of this information about his grandfather and all of the famous old white people that he was friends with, there ends up being like images of his grandfather that are up in the, in the bachelor mansion, just to keep reminding the women of this old money that they can marry into if they win this game. Uh, We get a bunch of intro videos of the women as they're getting ready at the hotel Uh, Something that really struck me about these was in these early seasons, these little montages, they show them like as they're putting on their clothes and you get glimpses of their underwear, glimpses of their bras. And it has a real feeling of if when Donald Trump had been going backstage at the Miss America pageants and like sneaking in where the underage girls are getting ready, this had very much that vibe to me. And they're interviewing the women. We meet a woman who we will come to know as Tina Fabulous, but she's just known as Tina here. And the producer has clearly asked her about, like, are the women thin? And Tina says, I think I'm thin. Do you think I'm thin? And this is the most blatant start of showing that these women don't have any body fat. There's not going to be women with body fat on this show. Thinness is this ideal thinness and richness and they're choosing to include this clip as one of the only things that we get to know about these women at the beginning of this season but this first episode also just like 
in season two. It gives us these kind of behind the scenes clips of how the production is made. And we see this segment where the producers get all the women into a lobby in this hotel and they tell them who their limo buddies are going to be. <laughs> so we get to see this moment where like, this is how it happens. They sequester all these women in hotel rooms by themselves. They tell them to get ready for the limo exits night one, basically. And they have all day to do it. And that's what this first episode is primarily about. And then they tell them, here are the four people you'll be riding in a limo with. And they put them in groups of five and they send them on their way. And that's the end of this first episode. Again, we don't get a night one out of the first episode of season three. In the second episode, we have night one. All of the women pull up to do their limo exits. And they are all, once again, handshake blandies, where they just go up, give a handshake. We see a little clip of them talking in an ITM. All... But one other Tina, Tina from Nashville, performs our first non-Blandy of all time. It's a stand-up. She comes up to him and she says, you have to keep me tonight because I have a lot of clothes I can't return. To which Andrew Firestone replies, return where? He is so rich that he does not understand the concept of returning products. We also get the deliberation room again. Same structure as the first two seasons. He's forced to come in, look at these pictures, and the racial makeup of this season is even worse than season two. It's 23 out of 25 players are white, 92% white, and both players of color out of these 25 are eliminated in the very first rose ceremony. So moving forward, it is all white to the end of this season. And then the regular season moves on very similarly to the first two seasons. We have date boxes. We've got fair group dates in the first episode. The friends come and live in the house. Really, the kind of biggest thing that happens in the regular season is the rise of Tina Fabulous. She establishes herself through a course of group dates, throwing a football better than anyone else, making these kind of funny little quips. She does at one point a reverse Kringle where she kind of coerces Andrew Firestone into giving her his watch, which she wears as a trophy, inciting the rage and animosity of everyone else in the house. And they're all saying how she shouldn't be doing that. And it's (laughs) going against the rules. There are no fucking rules. Tina Fabulous understands this. She parades around in sunglasses and high heels, and she basically just draws the attention of the cameras at all times. She is very clearly the most animated of all the players and she is fucking rewarded for it she makes it to the top three but this is the first time we're seeing in the bachelor this idea of a reality tv character that you can come onto this show i'm not saying she was there for twr either i think she really did kind of want to developed a relationship with this guy, may have had real feelings for him, but she also understood that she was on a show and she was going to fucking play that to the fullest. And she did. She got a fucking nickname. They start calling her Tina fucking fabulous. And that becomes a whole thing for the rest of the fucking season. She gets hot seat placement as a result of it. If there would have been a bachelor in paradise at this point, she's getting first fucking sand as a result of it. She plays these kissing walls as well, where she makes a point of like turning her cheek to Andrew Firestone. She won't kiss him on the mouth for a very long time. We, ha- we then we get to the playoffs and the finals. The fantasy suites are still in different places. We're made to believe that all of the players fuck. And Kirsten Bushbacher, who is 
one of the two finalists has the first ever Jed storyline here where a bunch of the women tattle on her and tell Andrew Firestone that she has an ex that she only broke up with very recently, that maybe he drove her to the airport and that she plans on maybe getting back with him right after the show. We're not sure whether this plays into Andrew's final decision, but we definitely have the first time where this is a storyline that they emphasize. And the seed of something is planted here. Because up to this point, we've only seen players coming in at least presented cleanly. That they are all single, they all have no attachments, they are all here only to find love with whoever the Bachelor is. But in this moment, when we see this first X storyline, we know that that's ultimately going to grow into its final evolution or its most contemporary evolution is fucking Chase Rice, where they're going to bring the guy back that you just had (laughs) sex with to fuck up your own date. And although that doesn't happen here, this ex never comes back, that idea, you can feel it fucking growing in the producer's mind when you see this. You can just, you can hear them salivating. Oh my God, an ex, how can we use that in the future? And we will see how they use that in the very near future. I mean, they end up using that almost every single season. Kirsten ends up going home in the finals and Jen Sheft wins the ring. She will later wear the crown as the third bachelorette. Uh, Congratulations, Jen. There were no PTCs played this season. We had a little bit more love level use. They're used a little more liberally, but love level four is only delivered by Sheft upon Andrew Firestone raising his love level to love level four during his proposal in the final. And it should be noted that Jen Sheft was the first ring winner to wear the crown. And if you get both of those trophies, that's called a full <laughs> royal. So congratulations to you, Jen Sheft. Historic. Another name dubbed by us. <laughs> by the way, this is just a small first that I think should be noted. Brooke from Jacksonville, Florida, had hair a haircut above her shoulders, so... It is commonly thought of that Becca Martinez was the first player to have her hair cut above her shoulders, but it was actually Jackson Vilbrook. And the season also gave us our first huge format change. It was the first two-hour episode in history for the finale. And so we start to see now that the network, ABC, sees benefit in giving them more airtime. They can sell more ads. We're starting to see the popularity of the show paying financial dividends to the companies that make it. And so the show is given more airtime. And that, of course, only increases throughout history until we have what we have now. Minimum, the episodes are two hours, all of them. And sometimes you get three-hour episodes. Sometimes you get fucking two two-hour episodes on back-to-back nights. Now it's just, it's a barrage. There is no length, no time limit to any of this shit. But here's where we saw that first happen, where the network was like, huh, this is doing pretty well for us. Maybe we give them a two-hour episode. Yeah, we get our first after the final rose here as well. Um, There were a few other dark season moments from this, including in the night one episode, DLH is talking to Andrew about the women, and he says there's many former beauty queens. And Andrew says, why former? We also have, we have both players of color, our night one girls. We have a bunch of boob montages. There's one woman who in her rose ceremony video is inexplicably wearing 
what appears to be a wig that is like a do-rag and braids, even though she's a white woman. Uh, we also have Liz on this player named Liz on one of the group dates ends up eating a eating lamb after she's been a vegetarian for 12 years, just cause she wants to have some attention from Andrew Firestone. Um, at the women tell all they introduce one of the reels that they play as like, this is where the girls get catty. And that's something that we see in almost all like the claws come out. Yeah. The claws come out as a repeated phrase. It becomes a, a very structured piece of the women tell alls and even some of the promotional bumpers that lead into commercial during the regular season episodes. But that's season three. Which brings us to arguably the most important season. I don't know. I'm not going to say it's the most important season because I think that's season seven, at least from what I've seen so far. But this is maybe second. It is up there. I think it's right behind season seven. And maybe they're equal. I don't know. But this is season four. We are calling it The The Dark Dark Experiment. Experiment. This marks a drastic departure from what we have seen in seasons one, two, and three for a variety of reasons. First of all, episode one is night one. It is a two-hour episode right off the fucking bat, and it encompasses not only the intro of our Bachelor, and they've done away with, there could be, any of these guys could be Bachelor. It was a big thing, and they all auditioned. That is fucking gone. They are upfront about the Bachelor, and it is going to be a guy named Bob Guinea. Bob Guinea made it through three episodes of the prior season of The Bachelorette, the first season of Bachelorette with Trista. And so they pulled him from that to make him The Bachelor. He is the first ever male player to become a crown winner. And it has a dramatic fucking effect on the season from the first episode. Because unlike any other Bachelor, he has already built parasocial relationships with every one of the players who walk through that door. They watched him on The Bachelorette. They think they know him. They think they love him. He doesn't know who the fuck any of them are. But because they have built these relationships with him by watching him on the show, the night they fucking show up, you get high emotions that did not exist in the first three seasons yet. You get tears. You get kisses. I mean, it is remarkable how just that element, casting somebody from a prior season, has already made it feel like a modern show almost immediately. Because the tensions are so high. It completely changes the vibe of night one. Completely. Uh, He's also our first divorced bachelor. And as DLH says that on Trista's season, this is a dark season moment, he says he was affectionately known as Fat Bob. So they're going to keep playing this up that he's like this ugly fat bachelor And in his intro package, they literally show him exercising and he says that he lost 30 pounds. So now he's ready to be The Bachelor. It's as if they are saying the only way you can be The Bachelor is to fucking drop the 30 pounds. You have to get in bachelor shape. They're promoting this idea very early on that it's like, we chose a different kind of bachelor. He's not as good looking. He's not as in shape. He's the funny bachelor. (laughs) And then it's like the first thing he does is like, no, no, I'm going to look just like all the other bachelors. Mark my words. I can do it too. And this idea that there can't be anyone who looks any different 
in this game is just right there. It's front and center. That's basically the thesis of the first fucking episode. In his video recap, we also see the results of his fame in this package where we see him getting hounded by fans wherever he goes and ultimately culminates with him being interviewed by Oprah. For me, I had an immediate flash forward to that sequence we saw of Pee-Pee's intro where he's walking through an airport in his pilot's outfit and everyone is asking him to take selfies. Yeah, fame as a component of this, that that's now what comes with The Bachelor. Fame is a piece of this and that is also what you're seeking through it. That is made very clear right up front in season four. We get intro videos again for the players and this includes... Emperor Mike Fleiss on camera, and he says, We take all kinds of things into consideration. There's psychological exams, there are blood tests, and most importantly, they have to look good in the hot tub. And then there's just a bunch of shots of asses and titties. It is horrifying. <laughs> now, let me ask you this you say it's horrifying, mm-hmm. and I agree by today's standards, we could never see anything like this on TV. But obviously, in this era, it worked because the show was wildly successful. Everyone watched it. And we have now, however many seasons later, it's still on the air. And yes, we are calling them Dark Seasons moments. But to me, they are not only indicative of like the kind of core rot at the base of this show, that this is what it is. It sells sex. It sells misogyny. It sells racism. It sells all these things. But it's also just such a fucking exact reflection of what society was then. Oh, absolutely. That's what I get from these dark season moments that it's like, it, it wasn't just that the show was fucking like this. It was like, we no, were clearly like, this. like America fake wanted were a this huge part of the culture at the time. That is, that is clearer than anything. So after these interviews, we get the limo exits. We've now, condensed what were two episodes in these prior seasons into one we get the getting ready for your limo exits and who is the bachelor and then we get night one as one two-hour thing and we can tell it's experimental right off the fucking bat because these limo exits are not all blandies we get some historical firsts here and one of them is the first aloha (laughs) this is when a player comes out of the limo speaking a language that is not english and forces the bachelor to be like oh that's crazy teach me some of your language and this is delivered by who? Mary Delgado. Maybe the greatest player who has ever fucking lived. Right here, revolutionizing the game, showing us that you do not have to come out and just shake the bachelor's hand and walk inside. And that may seem like not much of a big deal to us now because we've got people riding on horses and all this other fucking shit. But to do what she did... It was groundbreaking. Literally no fucking other limo exit had been done except for one one one-liner. This was revolutionary on every fucking level. And I just want to make sure that she gets the credit she deserves here. (laughs) We also had some producer experimentation shining through. As if casting your first guy from The Bachelorette wasn't enough. As if producing his fame to a level that he's being interviewed by Oprah wasn't enough. We get the first twins coming out of the fucking limo. They're really throwing curveballs. Like, what do they expect is going to happen? Will he date one of them? Will he date the other? They don't care. They're just like, let's see what's going to go on with this. Twins. We also have a historical moment. Not only do we have our first aloha in the limo exits, we also have our first it takes two when Estella comes out and has Bob put 
his hand on her heart to feel her heart part. She's engaging him in this activity, which is going to form a stronger memory of her on night one. It is a it is a limo exit type that we will see for the rest of time. And the first one is Estella, who ends up being a finalist. And then we also have our first night one curveball in history. Bob Guinea's fucking mother comes out <laughs> for the first night cocktails. And she's talking to some of the women and she tells him who she likes. Some of the women perform steals on his mom. And we see the effect of him already having developed parasocial relationships again here. When we get the first night one kiss ever in the history of the fucking game by Kelly Joe. This doesn't happen if she doesn't already have strong feelings developed for him by watching him on Trista's season. And at the end of this fucking first row ceremony, almost <laughs> all of the women who get eliminated fucking erupt into volcanoes of tears. We have not seen that on a night one yet. But because, again, these women feel that they already know him. They have already, to some degree, fallen in love with him. And he says, sorry, it's not going to work out. He's literally met them for like 20 minutes. They are fucking destroyed. And this is the contemporary night one. And the producers know that. They're like, okay, that's how we can ratchet this shit up. Yeah. Tears are one of the largest goals for the producers. We get into the regular season and we have another experiment right off the bat. DLH tells the women that this week the group dates are going to be, some of them are going to be elimination dates. And the players won't know if they're on an elimination date unless DLH shows up himself. So here he's painted as the harbinger of doom. And how these elimination dates work is there are four white roses, there are five women. If you do not get a rose, you are eliminated. And of course, the first group date is just such an elimination date. And we also see in this moment. The notion that if Dark Lord Harrison shows up on your date, it's a bad thing. <laughs> you don't want him there. And this entire season marks a very drastic shift in how Dark Lord Harrison is presented. In the prior three seasons, he is wearing predominantly light-colored suits, ties, pants. In this season, he is almost exclusively wearing black suits with dark-colored shirts. He is being presented as the specter of death. <laughs> and in the prior seasons... Hey, you laugh all you want. This is fucking real. I saw it with my own goddamn eyes. I saw eyes. it. <laughs> you did Spectre too. Specter of death. Every time I look in his face. They also do this weird thing in the editing. In the prior seasons, you see him walking into rooms, walking out of rooms. You see him actually moving in the way a human being does. In this season, you almost never see him in motion. <laughs> it's just this. Bob Guinea is sitting with... In this case, five women on this group date. They're laughing. Ha, 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 ha. You hear uh -huh. ding, ding, ding. The three tings. They all turn around and look. And DLH is just fucking standing there. Still as a goddamn statue. Looking at them with fucking empty voids for eyes. It is terrifying. <laughs> the way they present him. That he just appears. Ready to fucking claim a soul. And for my money, this is the first soul claimed. On this group date. You get eliminated, he is there, he is tinging, he is fucking looking at you with those eyes. 
And we see him pretty much presented this way for the rest of this season and even for the rest of the series. He now has become evil. He has embraced it. It's interesting because this is kind of like the first iteration of a group date rose. These roses end up being meaningless. The women can go home during the rose ceremony, but it is the first time where they're like, let's up the ante on the group date. Someone's going to get dumped at the end of this. It's kind of like using the stick versus having a group date rose is using the carrot. Yeah, they don't quite know the best way to do this, but they're trying. They're like, oh, let's get them all psyched up. Maybe they'll be afraid on this date, but that's not what you want. You want them to be competitive. You want to offer them a prize, not a punishment. We still have the date the date boxes. We haven't yet gotten down to the date cards. Uh, we have one episode ending on a cliffhanger without a rose ceremony for the first time. So they are even experimenting with the structure of the episodes in their presentation. The racial breakdown of this season is we have 23 of the 25 players are white. That's 92% white. The only black player, Julie, was a night one girl. Mary is Cuban, makes it to fantasy suites, breaks the brown ceiling. At this point, no player of color had ever made it past week two, and Mary makes it to fantasy suites. Through really stellar play, and... I don't want to get stuck on this because I could do this for a fucking hour just talking about her versus Nick Vial. But to watch what she did in these seasons, and I'm giving away something there, she did play in another season. The game hadn't been formed yet. What Nick Vial had was a very structured game dropped right in front of him. He had even watched prior seasons that were structured similarly. So he didn't have any huge surprises. He was able to maneuver within the rules of a game that was well, well established. Mary Delgado is playing in this fucking experimental era where it's all up in the air. You have to be so adept at being able to dodge and weave and come up with different plays on the fly and really be improvisational in the way you play in a way that Nick Vial never had to do. And for that, I think there's an argument to be made that she's a better player than him. And we'll get to her next season of plays coming up soon. But she really, in my mind was astounding to watch what she did. She had the first aloha in the history of the game. She's the oldest bachelorette at this point. She's 37. I would say that my two main takeaways from this season are that it's experimental and it's the rise of Mary Delgado. We also had a vote, our first vote during this, where the players have to vote for the most and least compatible, which those... The player who is the most and the least compatible both get one-on-one dates. Surprise. But it's a psychological experiment. The vote doesn't matter. The one-on-one dates don't matter. What that did was force all of these players into this highly emotionally charged event where they have to cast votes for and against each other. And it produces the effect of nervous breakdowns in almost all of them. (laughs) It is a house full of women crying, sobbing, because they don't want to engage in this activity. And they force them to do it anyway. To me, that was the first moment where you really see the sinister nature of what the producers do, that they don't give a fuck about these people. They are trying to push them to complete emotional breakdown and they succeed. But the ring winner that season is Estella Gardinier. She gets a ring, but no proposal. <laughs> Bob puts the ring on her finger and he says, this is a promise ring. 
and we will continue dating after this. And we can start to feel that the producers don't like that. They want a proposal at the end of their season. That's what they have to have. And so moving forward, they're going to start doing some other shit to get that. Uh, other firsts from this season, we had the first time that they filmed the women finding out that they're cast on the season where a producer shows up with a bunch of balloons and says you're on The Bachelor. And we had the first night one PVC, personal virginity card, where a player told him she was a virgin on the first night. She does end up getting eliminated. We had our first hospital sequence. Antoinette goes to the hospital. Illness injury. At after the final rose, we have the first head in the box watching where you're seeing the person's reactions and we also had the first player's mom in the audience Estella's mom was in the audience and then we move on to season five which we are calling are you ready for some football (laughs) because this time the bachelor is who jesse palmer he is a quarterback For the New York Giants, this is a football team in a league called the NFL. This is the complete marriage of the NFL and The Bachelor here. It it cannot get more NFL than this. And again, as we saw with pageants, as we are going to see with Donald Trump, we are now seeing these things that Pace Case and I talk about again and again and again, how they are all the same thing. Literally, a fucking NFL quarterback who's playing at the time is now The Bachelor. And the experimentation continues. We get a new mansion this season. On night one, we are also introduced to this experimental thing the producers are putting in by giving Jesse Palmer a fucking spy. One of the women playing this season will be a person he knows, a friend of his, and they're going to blur her out and change her fucking voice a little bit when they're showing her ITM so we don't know who she is either. So it adds this weird extra element as a viewer. You're trying to be like, who the fuck is the spy? Who the fuck is the spy? But it also is kind of game-breaking in a way, and I think they figured that out at some point through it. But again, they're willing to experiment still in this phase. They're making these alterations to the game to see what works and what doesn't. Uh, We also have all of the limo exits, our blandies, The producers still don't understand what they have in that first entrance, what kind of dramatic opportunities that it could provide, but they will. And we also introduce another experiment, the Fimp Rose. The first Fimp first impression rose ever is given to Jesse by DLH. This is more experimentation. He puts it in his belt, tucks it in. They don't yet understand how to present the FIMP. They know now you put it on a fucking silver tray, you have DLH walk into the middle of the fucking room and you put it right in front of all of them. You know, that's how you get the maximum benefit out of it. But in this iteration, the first time they tried it, DLH just gives it to Jesse Palmer. He tucks it into his waistband and hides it in his shirt. So none of the players know that it even exists. You definitely don't have the FIMP touch the Bachelor's balls in the modern era. Trish Schneider gets the first FIMP. And we will come to see her as the next step of the evolution of this reality TV character slash villain. I would argue that she is our first villain that we see in this franchise. Uh, She's camera ready at all times. She's in character at all times. She wears little costumes. She comes up with little witticisms. She is the next step of Tina Fabulous. 
And we also have Mandy J. Jeffries, a true blue pageant queen from Texas. That presence of pageants, it's fucking in every season. And now we really have it drawn out even more because it's a quarterback with a pageant queen. It's just, it's (laughs) all of that shit really fucking purified in this season. We also have at the end of the first rose ceremony, the first time a bachelor fucks up a name, he <laughs> says somebody that he didn't mean to say. And before he gets down to his last rose, he pulls DLH aside and he's like, sorry, I, uh, I messed up a name and I really need to like get that rose back or something. And they basically just hash it out. And he walks back into the room and he tells the woman that he mistakenly gave the rose to that it was a mistake. <laughs> but then he says, but I'm just going to get an extra rose to give to the real person. You can stay around. There was no need to do this at all. But he just fucking crushes her. But she does stay, of course. It is another white season. We have 22 out of 25 of the players are white. That's 88%. And all three players of color go home by week two. And then we see once we get into the regular season, something that's been happening in all these seasons, the women spend a lot of time by the pool, a lot of time in bikinis. It's almost as if the producers forced them to hang out there in their bikinis all day long and serve them unlimited alcohol. Now, this is where Trish Schneider steps in and we really start to see her shine. She takes this to the next fucking level. She's like, I'm not going to hang out in a fucking bikini, dudes. I'm going to put on a fucking thong. She walks out. All the other players are like, whoa, she's in a thong. What is she doing? We get a little slut shaming tone going on here and it forces the producers. We get our first blurred box. Yeah, we get the first blurred box. We know that's what the producers do now if they want to draw attention to somebody. And they make a whole fucking plot around Trish and her thong. It becomes a story in one of the very first episodes. And Trish continues this rampage of villainy when at one point all the women are drinking and talking and Trish divulges that she's had sex with over 30 men, including one that was married. She is slut-shamed immediately by the other players, and this will start a trend over the next few seasons that gets more and more abusive in the slut-shaming arena. Oh, yeah. Tara, who is one of the finalists, responds to this and says, I couldn't believe how slutty Trish is after she admits to sleeping with 30 to 35 people. Jenny, the spy, eventually starts divulging all of this information about Trish and the other women to Jesse, but it's to no avail. He's going to make his own decisions. She also eventually tells the other women, the spy, there's mixed reactions. Some of the people feel like they've been betrayed by her. And during one of the morning meetings with Dark Lord Harrison, Trish comes down and she's wearing a tiara and a t-shirt that says gold digger like a hooker just smarter we get a little zoom in on that t-shirt um she ultimately gets kicked off after hometowns she has a pretty decent hometowns but she gets kicked off after this and she does the first resurrection in history and we see the benefit of being a villain of bringing the drama and being the most entertaining character The producers are going to bring you back and they will do it when he's on a fantasy suite date with Mandy J. She crashes their dinner. It doesn't work, but we see the first time the producers are really trying to overtly sabotage relationships instead of helping build them. And it seems like this mandate will become a significant part of the show from here on out. We, we literally see this in almost every season now. And this was the first fucking time. 
He's on a date with this woman, Mandy J., the pageant queen. They're in the ballroom of a hotel having a private dinner. There are lights outside the fucking door that is shut, blasting through the fucking uh, curtained windows. You can see clearly the production is set up for something. And then you just see the silhouette of Trish walk up to that door. And you're like, oh, my God. Even on Jesse Palmer's face, you can see he's like, I can't believe they're fucking doing this to me. Mandy J's reaction to it is like, whatever. Go talk to her in the kitchen. And the producers make Jesse Palmer and Trish go off and have this private fucking conversation. But you can see that Mandy J understands it's a production. Oh, he describes it as going from a Cinderella fairy tale into the mouth of hell, basically going in the kitchen with Trish. <laughs> but this is really the first moment I felt like in the history of the game where the producers have so overtly stepped in to try to explicitly destroy a relationship that it can't be ignored. I Even in whatever this was, 2004, 2005, I can't imagine somebody sitting at home watching that and not being like, what the fuck? Why would the producers do that? Isn't this show about helping him find love? By the way, on Mandy J's hometown, we get the pageant thing up to the 100th degree. We see that she has a whole room that's all of her pageant shit. And even her dad is really into that she was into pageants. Her mom says, I think Mandy would make a great NFL wife. So it's just like... There's even right before that segment happens, before that hometown happens, the bumper at the end of it is Dark Lord Harrison saying, and then Jesse has to endure pageant hell. He fucking literally says that. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. (laughs) Yeah, this... uh, Her making a, a great NFL wife is just like, oh, Mandy can be this like sort of accessory to a man. It's, uh... It's not great for women. Let's just say that. Also not great for women. Jessica Bolin wins the ring, but again gets no proposal. Instead, Jesse Palmer gives her a one-way ticket to New York to says, come live with me and let's date. It's shocking that this doesn't work out. She is 21 years old. Um, But this is also our first out-of-order final rose. Uh, Jessica is actually first, gets the plane ticket, is the winner and then you have Tara come second and get dumped while Jessica is watching from this upstairs window in the building and they keep cutting to her watching this dumping go down. And then on after the final rose we have a an extremely significant moment. When this shit happened, I almost lost my fucking mind. It's just a standard after the final rose. We see Jesse Palmer, we see Jessica Bolin, we see all the main players from that season. And then the end of this after the final rose, they leave and we get 10 minutes with who? Jen Sheft, the winner of season three. She is going to become the Bachelorette, but in this moment, DLH sits her down, he puts an Us Weekly cover up on camera. It's the first time we ever see a magazine cover or any kind of peripheral media related to The Bachelor promoted through The Bachelor. This cover is of Bill Rancic, who won a show called The Apprentice. And so Dark Lord Harrison is asking Jen Sheft about her dating life and blah, blah, blah. And he says, you dated Bill Rancic, right? She's like, yeah, we did go out a couple of times. It didn't work out, though, because he won The Apprentice. And now he is verbatim. He is Donald Trump's right-hand man. She says this in the fucking show. Now, of course, Donald Trump had not become political at that time. He hadn't run for anything. This was about 10 years before it. Nonetheless, this to me 
is hardcore evidence that these things are all interrelated. They also say Bill Rancic wanted to be The Bachelor, and they play his audition tape for The Bachelor. So we have the ring winner of Bachelor Season 3 is dating The Apprentice, who wanted to be The Bachelor, who is now Donald Trump's right-hand man. And this reality TV world is starting to be laid out before us in this moment, how it is all connected. This, again, I will remind you, is on the season that had an NFL quarterback as The Bachelor. It's all the fucking same. It's pageant queens, it's NFL, it's Donald Trump. This is what we're a part of. This was the most complicit I had ever felt, by the way, (laughs) seeing that moment. Wow. It definitely is this feeling of another era when you have them both laughing like, oh, now he's into, you know, doing stuff with Trump and it's all very innocent. But you can see where like how DLH could be a Trump supporter because it was like DLH has memories of all this, obviously. And at a certain point, Donald Trump is another big reality show, just like you. You feel a kind of kinship with him because you're both big reality hosts. And now it's like the worlds are intertwined. DLH feels, I think, some fatherly relationship with all these players. Even then, he feels like he's in control of it. So he's like, oh, a star of my show dated a star of your show. It's all, it's almost like him and Trump are the dads of these two kids that wound up getting married or dating or whatever. It's fucking, it's right there. It's in plain sight. And we wrap up another experimental season. We had the first spy, first NFL presence, first Fimp Rose. We have the first risers during the rose ceremony. They're finally not doing that thing where they're all weirdly sitting on these couches. They have to just stand up next to each other. It heightens the tension. Um, We had the first two-on-one, which was between Trish and Mandy J, although it's not yet the two-on-one we know in the modern game where one stays and one goes. Uh, At Women Tell All, we had the first time we didn't hear from any heartbroken players. We had double hot seats for Trish. This was really Trish's season. She gets the first resurrection. We have a couple, uh, a couple dark season moment bumpers by DLH up next. The cat fight begins and one woman will be destroyed (laughs) as if, if this woman doesn't get proposed to, she's it's, she will be exploded into oblivion. This is true of all of these seasons. Especially when we're watching it like we're watching it at two Mm -hmm. times speed. What you really become aware of are the bumpers, the things that go right before and right after commercials, the things that take you out of the show and be like, when we come back, you're going to see this, 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 and this. They are almost exclusively used to promote trauma. That's what they're selling. When we come back, it's a boyfriend's nightmare times four when he's got to meet their things. When we come back, see which of these women will be left heartbroken. They use this language every time. That's literally what they're promoting. That's what we're (laughs) tuning in to watch. It is the idea of human suffering that we are entertained by. That's what the show is. Yeah, Bachelor Clues made a great point, which is the bumper is never like, Come back to see which woman will fall in love. (laughs) That never happens. And we move on to season six. What we have dubbed Two Bachelors, bachelors, One Rose. Rose. The experimentation continues. What they did in season four, beginning the experimentation with Bob Guinea, led to the development of a first impression rose, the attempt of this spy in season five with Jesse Palmer. 
Now we see the producers basically say, uh, fuck it. Let's destroy everything. <laughs> let's just fucking crumble this and try to build it from the ground up. Let's see if we can do something completely new. It fails in many ways, but in some ways it, uh, it does work in that it gives them ideas for where they can take things. No, it also, to me had some very interesting implications for how Claire Crawley's Bachelorette season is going to go, just in terms of having an older cast, having them live with the players. So this fucking season starts with DLH coming out. He is pissed the fuck off. And he says this, this season, the Bachelor must propose or walk away. He issues this fucking decree as though that could ever be enforced. But clearly the producers are sick of having these guys show up and be like, I got a ring for you, but I'm not going to propose to you yet. Instead, here's a ticket to come. (laughs) They don't want that shit anymore. They want a dude on one fucking knee, opening that ring box, making that fucking proposal. And God damn it, they're going to have it. They say that's literally the first thing that is said in the beginning (laughs) of this fucking season. And then DLH says, all bets are off. We're going to have two fucking bachelors. And you're like, what the fuck? Two separate limos pull up to a brand new mansion. These guys get out. Byron and Jay. Byron Velvic and Jay. Name I don't know. Both of these guys are 40 years old. Oldest bachelors in history. And the women on this season are the oldest players we've ever had. Average age is 31.65. Six players over 35. One is 39 years old. The youngest was 27 years old. You're getting no Hannah Slusses, no Madison Pruitts. These do not exist in this season. And there's 22 out of the 27 players are white. This is 81% white. So actually a pretty diverse season during the dark seasons. And we had our first player of color to win the ring. We'll get to it. Also, Elizabeth, who is a black player, makes it to the fourth rose ceremony, which is the furthest ever for a black player. This season is off the rails from the very start. We get zero limo exits. There's no Fimp Rose. They've actually revoked it from the game. Instead, we have the two bachelors sitting in a sealed off room together and they watch footage of the women mingling. They're like by the pool in their bikinis. And these two dudes are just fucking in like a darked out room. They've sealed off all the windows so the women can't see in. They're like fist bumping and shit as they're like, oh, look at her. (laughs) Yeah. And then... Uh, DLH gets them both. He brings them out, introduces them all to the women. And he basically says, you guys now have to talk to them. And you, the ladies are going to determine which of these fucking guys is the bachelor. They have this fucking weird rose ceremony in the middle where it's the two bachelors are standing with their backs to the women. There are two different colored roses that represent each of them, yellow and white. And the women are asked one by one to walk up, select a white rose or a yellow rose corresponding to whichever bachelor they want and put it in this fucking box. Supposedly, this is building drama. (laughs) However, every one of the women can see who's voting for who. So they know who's going to fucking win. There is no drama here. But after they place all their votes in the fucking box, the two guys are asked to turn around and DLH for what seems like 20 or 30 minutes, (laughs) one by one reaches into the box and pulls out a fucking rose and puts it on the corresponding pedestal and says the number every time. Byron, that's one rose for you. Jay. That's one for you. And he does this until Byron eventually has 13 roses. He is crowned the bachelor and Jay has to fucking kick rocks. And we have another twist here. Not only were there two bachelors, the women were empowered, quote unquote, getting to pick, 
but the bachelor Byron is going to live on the same premises as the women. It, he appears to be living in the pool house of the mansion. This creates this very bizarre dynamic the whole season where there's no cocktail parties. The women can do knock knocks whenever they want. And we see the rise of Krista. Krista is our first hardcore player. She's trying to convince women to vote for her selection. Jay, all through her ITMs this whole season, they're all about competition and gameplay. She initiates this not here to make friends strategy with him literally on night one. Yeah, usually the not here to make friends strategy is something that you kind of get forced into doing because you get accused by all the other players of not getting along with anybody and it becomes this whole thing, this drama that has to be explained to The Bachelor where he's asking you, well, why don't you get along with these women? And then you pull out the not here to make friends strategy. But not Krista. The first time she gets him alone, he's like, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And she just goes, I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> it's like, whoa, what the fuck? She's just like dead set in the game immediately. She's watched every season of Bachelor up to this point, And she is locked into the competition of it. Too much so. But it really paints that picture of like, okay, you see for the first time, somebody is seeing this as only a game, a sport. And she's here to fucking play. I mean, she's got the Trish model. Trish had the most screen time of most of the players last season and Krista is going hard on that. Uh, DLH tells the players that in the first regular season episode, there are no rules. This is the ultimate experimentation by the producers. They're basically telling the players to do whatever they want. They just want to see what transpires. Krista's already getting naked in the pool. She's really playing this solid attention game. And then there's a mystery date in the third week of this season that has Byron going to a bar by himself. And DLH just tells him, go there and see what happens. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on. No other players are going with him. It's just him. He goes into this bar. An elevator comes up. It opens and out steps Heather from season two and Mary Delgado from season four. They literally walk out of the fucking elevator and tell him, hi, we're here to date you now. So for the first time in the history of the game, they have brought players from another season to come and play again in this season. Very much like what happened with Nick Vial and Caitlin Bristow season where he crashed in episode four. They are crashing in episode three. I don't know how this happened. I don't know who reached out to who, but the beneficiaries of this astounding power move are, at least in this moment, Heather and Mary. Heather Crawford, I'm talking about from season two. Heather, of course, does not make it through that night's rose ceremony, but Mary sure fucking does. <laughs> and the rest of this season belongs to her and her only. What she does from this moment forward is fucking transcendent. She begins to define a certain kind of mainstay of a group of elements that all players, all successful players will use from this moment forward. She even invents a little something called the Hooju. You heard me correctly. Mary Delgado performs the first ever Hooju in her hometown in Tampa, Florida. Takes place on a softball field. She's wearing a softball hat. She has a softball glove. They run to each other. She jumps into the air. She does a pretty good upper body cling. She only gets one leg wrapped around him, but it's fucking wrapped around him. Now, I'm not saying this is a great Hooju. I'm just saying it is the first fucking hooju in the history of our beloved game every hoojuer 
who has come after this owes everything they are to Mary Delgado. Kelsey Weir, the greatest hoojuer maybe ever who has ever fucking played the game. You don't have shit without Mary Delgado. I just want her to get the credit she deserves because I, when I saw this fucking moment, I almost started fucking weeping. I almost produced tears because it was incredible to see. It wasn't a put on. The producers hadn't set this up. She just fucking did it. And now we see it. How many times a season? I don't fucking know. It is a main element of the show. She fucking invented it. Guys, I cannot begin to explain the reaction that I saw on Clues' face when Mary Delgado did this. He said, I'm having a heart attack. My world is rumbling. I'm never going to recover from this. (laughs) It was so fucking hilarious. It's almost like, I don't know when this first happened in basketball, but certainly somebody did like the first slam dunk. That happened. I don't know who the fuck it was. I'm sure it's Googleable. This was the equivalent of that to me. It was like seeing this piece of the game that is, it's so much a part of the modern game. And it's talked about endlessly by people, mainly me, but it's talked (laughs) about a lot, you know? And to see where it started and that it was just made up by a player, that it wasn't a producer setup. She made this happen. For that reason, almost alone, like Nick Vial didn't contribute anything that groundbreaking to the game. What about first pre-fantasy fuck? I don't even know if that's true anymore. As we're going through these dark seasons, I'm like, I think we're going to see some shit. Yeah, Reality Steve has alluded to the fact that other players have had sex pre-fantasy suites, but it just hasn't been a storyline until Nick and Caitlin. That, to me, doesn't count. You, Whatever you're doing, if it's not put into the show, you didn't do it right. You have to do it in a way that makes producers want to service it, you know? Um, but nonetheless, I just wanted to take a moment to really highlight that she <laughs> invented the fucking hooju and then has a fucking fantastic run for the fe- the rest of the season. By the way, this hometown in Mary's hometown is after Fantasy Suites. That's right. This is another strange bit of experimentation by the producers this season where they have four Fantasy Suites and then three hometowns. And ultimately, Mary Delgado wins the fucking ring. This is something that to me is another argument for why she's better than Nick Vile. Nick Vile never won a fucking ring. Tried twice, <laughs> never won a ring. She tried twice, got third place, and a ring win. She crushed this fucking season. It is hard for me to say. Very hard for me to say, but I think... Ah, fuck, I don't know. She may be better than Nick Vial. I said it. I'm just going to put it out there. Oh, shit. I don't know. I know. I know. This it's is, very hard. This like is I said. the craziest shit to come out of the dark seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Clues thinks a player might be better than Nick Vial. I mean, it's very hard to make the comparison, again, because they just played in two different eras. Like, she won season six. I don't even know how to describe what season six is. We're trying, and I think not even really building it up to what it actually is, which is just fucking utter chaos. It makes no sense top to bottom. They have destroyed whatever functional format the game might have had, and she still fucking won it. I mean, I think we'll probably have to do an All-Stars episode about Mary Delgado at some point, and then we can get deeper into it. But... Her play is absolutely outstanding this whole time. Her chemistry game with Byron is the strongest of anyone. 
And let me remind you, she is 37, the oldest bachelorette ever to play this game at this point. It's crazy. And she's a player of color. Yeah, and she is Latinx. I had no idea that this happened. I thought that Rachel Lindsay broke the brown ceiling. I did too. And it's strange that something so progressive could be presented in this same season or the same era that is also so fucking racist and misogynistic. Not that it's not now, but it was much more overt in these seasons, I feel like. But Mary Delgado, to me, really, she was the story of all the dark seasons. She was the most Mm -hmm. important thing to come out of them. But certainly, she was the most important thing to come out of season six here. She's also adapting to (laughs) this fucking crazy game where now... Oh, there's two bachelors. Well, she actually didn't meet Jay. She's coming in episode three. He lives in the house. They're doing all this weird shit in this experimental phase that she's adapting to. She also had a huge target being this all-star to come back. Um, She beat out the other all-star, Heather. And they actually do seem in love at this point. Like To me, this seems like the most genuine relationship of the final of the winner that we've seen to date. Yeah, I totally fucking agree. When he proposes to her, they both raise love level to four and it seems very genuine. Uh, There were some other firsts this season when he moves in with his dog. There's also a player who brings her dog to the show, which is super cute. Um, There's no cocktail parties this season. Instead, they do these weird things called last chance talks where Byron picks three players he's going to talk to, which is basically like a producer-initiated Hail Mary, where they're talking to them right before rose ceremony. Um, We see the end of the date boxes. It's just date cards at this point. First mystery date of Mary and Heather joining. It's the first re-entry into the game of a player, because Mary ends up getting a rose. Um, there's four people in fantasy suites. I thought we hadn't seen that until Hannah Brown season. We're getting knock knocks. There's this woman named Jane who does this strange, she runs away from the mansion or we're made to believe she runs away from the mansion, but really she's just done a knock knock. But the player, but Mary initiates this like search party for Jane. And it's also a move away from the path they were on with Bob Guinea and Jesse Palmer being famous. Byron Velvick is not famous. He is a pro bass fisherman. No, but he does end up going to ESPN afterwards, which is a path we've seen several bachelors do. Oh, we also at the Women Tell All, they're now on chairs instead of couches, which is a huge improvement where they're all next to each other and they're not separated in this like stadium seating couches where they're shouting a hundred yards at each other and we have the first live audience at after the final rose as well oh by the way byron proposes in fucking spanish to mary this season is that is another element of this that was very progressive and it progressed us straight to season seven Genesis. genesis to be sure season seven is the final season of the dark seasons as we know but like I said in the beginning of this, I think the Dark Seasons aren't really their own thing. It's 
up to season three. Then there's a cutoff. We're now in the experimental phase. Season seven is definitely part of that. We're going to be watching the rest of the seasons in the very near future. So we don't know what comes after season seven, but we know what was in season seven. And it is a fucking disaster. (laughs) Top to bottom, a fucking nightmare. No structure, (laughs) no rhyme or reason. It is just utter fucking chaos. But it breeds the new version of this game. In this season, you see the birth of many, many of the parts of the game that we have come to know and love, that we accept as the structural foundation of what we now watch. They, of course, return back to their tried and true formula of someone famous. Kind of. It's the brother (laughs) of of someone famous. (laughs) The Bachelor this year is Charlie O'Connell. He's the brother of an actor named Jerry O'Connell, who really was at the height of his fame in this year, which was 2005, I believe. Because we have Hoochfest 2005. That's how you know it's 2005. (laughs) That's right. They marked it in the document with the Hoochfest. Now, a lot of people think he was a shitty bachelor. Dark Lord Harrison has even publicly said he was his least favorite bachelor. I have my reasons for this, and we will get to them later, why I believe Dark Lord Harrison hates him so much. But I actually think we owe the modern game to Charlie O'Connell. I think many of the things that happened in his season were a result of his demands put on the show, and they kind of produced these things inadvertently that became huge components of the show. The first big one is he said, I don't want to do this in LA. I live in New York. So they did this whole season in fucking New York. The women are all living in cramped fucking like bunk bed quarters (laughs) in this fucking apartment. There's not a mansion. There's no pool. And he tells the producers that he doesn't want to do these big elaborate dates. He wants to date these women like he would date them normally if they were living in New York. And so that starts with the removal of limo exits. We get none. Instead, what we get is... All 25 women are living in this hotel. The producers fucking knock on their door in episode one at like 6 a.m. or whatever. And they're like, you got five minutes to get ready. And then you're meeting The Bachelor. They're all frantic, scrambling around. But this is Charlie O'Connell's doing. He wanted to meet them normally. What do they look like when they just roll out of bed? So all the women are getting ready, running around, running around. Charlie O'Connell's coming through the back entrance of the hotel. And then they are told that they get this new thing. They each are going to have two minutes to do a speed date with him and make an impression. And there are going to be two roses up for grabs in these two minute intervals. Now, a lot of people see this and they're like, oh, this is shit, bullshit, two minutes. What can you do in two fucking minutes? This is crap. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) This is the birth of the modern limo exit. I know what you're thinking. You just told me they're not coming out of limos. They're just meeting him with these two minute things. You're right. But here are the elements that this sets up. There is a prize. There's a rose. Just like they know there's a first impression rose. For the first time, they know their interaction with him in this initial meeting could yield a rose. It could keep them safe. So because of that, their ambition is fucking ratcheted up. Their level of competition is ratcheted up. And even though they only have two minutes, you see some shit happening here that is fucking crazy. A player named Christine does the first triple combo in history. A tot, which is a trick-or-treat, to a kringle, which is a giving of a gift, to a standee, which is a stand-up. She comes in in a dress. She removes it to reveal underneath she has a fucking bikini on. That's her trick-or-treat. She kringles him by giving him a poem she wrote, pre-made material she came in, and then at the end she fucking kringles him again by giving her 
by giving him her swimsuit top. We've never seen anything like this. And she's doing this because she knows there are stakes, because she knows she has this limited amount of time. That little two-minute window becomes, in a player's mind, their two minutes to shine. This is their show. And we still see that same attitude now in the modern-day limo exit. And I also think it gave producers the idea to say, ah, if we give them a kind of ceremonial attempt to introduce themselves, they're going to do crazy shit. So I think... For me, this moment was incredible. It really painted the canvas with just kind of a base coat of what would become the Mona Lisa that would be the modern limo exit. (laughs) The base coat for the Mona Lisa. (laughs) After this base coat, Charlie is then forced to eliminate five women on the spot. There's no rose ceremony. He has to call out the names of these five women who are dumped immediately. Unlike previous episodes where we don't get the dates until week one, we get group dates in this episode. There's no date cards, no date boxes. Charlie is just calling them up on on this landline and saying, hey, this is a date with five people. Figure out who's going to go on this date with me. And he ignores the ceremony of this, which is likely why Chris Harrison hates him so much. He's the uh, purveyor of ceremony in our beloved game. And Charlie refuses it. And he even refuses to utter the phrase, will you accept this rose at the rose ceremony? And to my knowledge, this is the only bachelor to ever do this in the history of the game. I think this is 100% why... Dark Lord Harrison hates him. Dark Lord Harrison's entire job's entire identity is to ting, ting, ting. The ceremony (laughs) begins. Here is the fucking rose on the golden platter. Here is the fucking rose ceremony. His whole job is to make this very regimented ceremony out of it. And fucking Charlie O'Connell just is like, nah, dude. When they first meet each other in the pilot episode, it's on a street in New York City. DLH comes up to him and Charlie's there. And he's like, are you ready to do this? As DLH always asks. And he goes, no, I'm nervous. This is crazy. And Charlie O'Connell grabs DLH by the (laughs) shoulders and kind of shakes him in a a comedic moment. And you can see the fucking look in DLH's eyes is just like, don't fucking touch me. And from that moment, their relationship sours. And it's, it's shown time and time again with Charlie refusing to do these kind of standard parts of the bachelor ceremony. We then get amongst this entire shit show of this season we get our first group date roses the first in history there's going to be two group date roses on each date and the women are now deciding who goes on the dates that's the first time this has happened where one of the women will answer the phone and he'll be like there's six and then the woman like shouts to everyone else hey who wants to go on this one Um, We also get the first one-on-one roses for the one-on-one dates. It's that it just seems like they're throwing a shitload of things at us. They're finding what works. It's this idea of zero point roses, as we have talked about with our rose quotient. This is really where they invented it. They tried to put prize roses 
in every interaction. So it's in your first two minutes when you meet them, you could win a rose. Anytime you go on a group date, you can win a rose. If you go on a one-on-one, you can win a rose. They just fucking flooded it with roses. And they saw that that really made these players so fucking competitive. And that ultimately is what brings us the modern game. It's these little chances a player has to get a rose. The more of those you have in the game, the better off you are. But they did take the competition too far, in my opinion, in a few (laughs) areas, because they created this fucking thing where at every rose ceremony in this season, you have the people who have gotten the date roses are sitting on a couch kind of off to the side. They're not a part of this anymore. They're kind of watching the proceedings from their little throne. I liked that element. I did too. That was actually kind of interesting. But the women who do not have roses are put on risers, which is what we see now. And they are allowed a final attempt to kind of air their grievances, to ask Charlie a question, to talk to one another, whatever. And it erupts in a fucking chaotic fight every goddamn time. Somebody's calling somebody some name. Somebody's yelling at another person. Why did they get the rose? How could you give her a rose? What? She's so different than me. It's fucking madness. Mostly they're calling each other sluts and bitches. And this is literally... One second before he has to hand out the roses in a rose ceremony. So imagine, if you will, all the women are waiting up there as we now see in the modern game, bated breath, super nervous. Oh my God. Sometimes they whisper to each other. That's about as much as you get. In this one, they're fucking screaming at each other. And then he's like, well, uh, I guess... Susie, rose. <laughs> and again, he's not even saying, will you accept this rose? He just calls their name. They walk forward and he goes here and they take it. Here. It is so fucking strange to watch this season. But again, these elements are in place. You see them with these roses. Uh, this is another season where we have 22 out of the 25 players are white and no player of color makes it past the first rose ceremony. Uh, we get into the regular season Week two, DLH introduces one-on-one date roses where basically you can either get a rose or it'll be an execution. Um, So the women now have to, it's the first time they have to pack their bags before a date. And then we end up getting our first Grim Reaper, the first one-on-one rose ever that a player could get ends up being an execution and the Grim Reaper comes and takes their bags and all the women watch. The Grim Reaper, for those who don't know, is what the producers call the guy who comes into the room to wheel their bag out if they get kicked off on a one-on-one. That's literally the show's name for them. Oh, I thought we did that. (laughs) And then we get some more historical firsts. In the hometown round, a player named Kimberly is showing him around her hometown. She takes him out to a little bar that she likes to frequent. And we get the first, what we are calling skeleton. A skeleton is a person who is not a player, but is a piece of the past of a player. And so on this hometown date, we get another player who's already been kicked off, shows up on their hometown date with a skeleton in tow. And the skeleton in this case is Kimberly's ex-boyfriend. So this is the first time we see the producers have reached outside the game to find somebody from a player's past to bring them into the game to completely derail one of these dates. They are trying to sabotage this and destroy the relationship in, in, at this point, the highest level we have ever seen. This is the most effort they've put forth. They are bringing back a player he kicked off to try and get his attention while on the same date, The player who is on the date, Kimberly, her ex-boyfriend tries to get her attention. So it is this weird four-way producer manipulation that does not work, 
but they're trying shit. You can see the producers now are willing to do almost anything to destroy a relationship. And they try to make it look like a coincidence. The ex-player Jenny says, Edmonton is a small town. I knew they were in town and I thought they'd be here. When obviously she had the producers help to do this. And up to this point, it should be noted that we have had no date cards. It's just Charlie calling them and asking them out on dates. This is another piece of the ceremony of it that he refuses to engage in. There are also no fantasy suite cards. It's just them at the end of dinners and he invites them back to his room or not. There's also no actual fantasy suites. They're just called overnight dates. It's literally them just coming back to his fucking room. The big kind of ceremony of it is totally stripped away in this season and it doesn't work as as far as a viewing experience. It does make the season very shitty. By the way, this is the first time that all of the fantasy suites are in the same part of the world. They're all at this resort in Aruba. I thought for a second that it would be just like the fantasy suites in PP season where they're all in the same room, but the women do get individual hotel rooms at this hotel. Although they kind of have this weird thing where they run into each other. They're sort of playing that up. They have all of their cars arrive at the same time and DLH is like, uh, all your fantasy suites are here when they all thought they were going to be alone in Aruba with Charlie. And then Charlie continues to make this show his own. He refuses to make a decision between the final two and he gets the show to let him keep dating both women after the finale for two months, agreeing to do his first ever, the first ever final decision live on TV at After the Final Rose, where he's going to pick between the two women he's been dating for two months. So he's basically continuing this poly relationship for two months. It's somewhat filmed. We see some of their dates and we see their weird phone calls. And they act like, oh yeah, we, we're dating in the normal world. Like We're seeing what life is like without the show. But it's like, we're only seeing the stuff that they are filming and also these dates in Mexico, which are definitely bachelor fantasy type dates. So, And there's a fucking camera crew shooting all of this. They are not outside of the show at all. They are very much inside the fucking show. At After the Final Rose slash the finale, they're kind of one and the same in this season. It's the yeah. first three hour event we have ever fucking had. And they just keep asking Charlie again and again, how are you feeling? Nervous? How are you feeling? Nervous? And he's like, yeah, I'm being forced to do something horrible to someone on national TV. He keeps saying that again and again, undercutting the kind of circumstance of the show. And we can tell DLH does not like that either. And they've flown both of their families there. Yeah. Both of their families are sitting in the audience one will get to watch their daughter maybe get proposed to or get a ring or win the show, and the other will have to watch their daughter be destroyed on national television. It's fucking brutal. Like, the women have now been dating him so much longer than any other final two that we've had in the history of the show. Charlie is benevolent. He goes to the loser, Chrysalis dressing room, and does the dump there. He said he wants to spare her the humiliation of doing it out on the stage but still this is obviously broadcast on television so he's not sparing her the humiliation of the entire country watching it and then sarah bryce is our ring winner this season it's another non-proposal he has the ring which is at this point from a company called takari 
So they have altered their diamond dealer, but it isn't Neil Lane yet. And they each do a love level four raise to each other. And we still haven't gotten to the era of the game where love levels are raised more liberally. Four is still only reached in the finale, whereas now in the modern game, it's usually fantasy suites or hometowns. Um, And we had a few more dark moments, many boob related during this. There's a volleyball group date where Danushka says, if I wanted big boobs, I would have bought them like the other girls. This woman, Gaetan, says that all the other women, they're dancing provocative or acting like a sleaze or a trashy. It's not me. Chrisley and Danushka have a conversation where Chrisley says, I feared coming back to the house after that whole body shot thing. And Danushka says, that doesn't make you a bitch. That makes you a slut. DLH then brings this back in the af- in the Women Tell All and says, Danushka, you had the best line. That doesn't make you a bitch. That makes you a slut. And he laughs. And then we had a, f- a few others. We had Chrisley said, she's feeling intimidated because she's the oldest one in the group. It's a total difference when you're 32 and look 32 and 25 and look 25. And then we had... What was my favorite dark season moment? Sarah W., who ends up getting third place in Fantasy Suites, gets kicked off. And she says, I'm such a sweet girl and I'm such a good catch. People think I'm selfish or whatever. But I think when it comes down to it, the truth is that like people are mean to me sometimes because of the way I look, you know? It sounds so like stupid, but like people hate me because I'm beautiful. And that is, it sounds so horrible, but like that is like a real thing, you know? And it's, and it's such a curse, as much as it is a blessing to be pretty. And people think I'm so, just so surfacy. I mean, no matter what, there is a huge, like, prejudice and racist. And when it comes down to it, like, that's why this didn't work out. If I would have just been a little uglier and a little less noticeable. She's basically saying that there should be an equal rights movement for hot white blonde ladies. Sarah W. walked so Victoria White Lives Matter could run. But that's it. That's the dark seasons. That's everything we saw in it. And like I said, I wish we could go through every episode because it really deserves that level of scrutiny. And maybe at some point in the future we will, but we wanted to just bring you the highlights and the meaning of what all these seasons really conveyed in terms of the evolution of the game, in terms of where we were as a society as we watched them, the amount of conversations about boobs and whether they are fake or not in all of these seasons was astounding to me at almost every one of the women tell all dark lord harrison brings up somebody's boobs and they have a little one minute conversation about who has fake boobs and who doesn't and who's going to get them and clearly that was a thing in the culture at the time like that's not just particular to the bachelor but it really does it does make me appreciate how far we've come with regards to how we talk about how women look there may still be this implicit bias towards thin white women on the bachelor they're getting cast and stuff but they're not playing it up as much like this particular asset is better than this one yeah overall i would say my parting thought is for me the most important thing to come out of all of them was mary delgado i had no idea about her and she is yeah quite possibly the best player who ever played i mean we should note that part of the reason I think that we don't hear about Mary Delgado ever 
is because she was arrested for assaulting Byron the day after their after the final rose uh, punched him in the face. That has no bearing on the quality of her play over her two seasons. Okay, <laughs> that was extra <laughs> curricular activity. They dated for years after that, though. They stayed together a long time. But thank you very much for going on this ride with us through the dark seasons. We are very excited to continue our hyper binge of all seasons coming up. And I'll be putting on my Instagram stories any little tidbits we find as we do that. Thank you once again to the Dark Seeker, Grace Ann Parks, for bringing us this delicious meal, which we devoured. Please be the Dark Seeker. What was it? Five days? Six seasons in five days? On to season eight. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming with us on this journey to see all of the dark secrets of the dark seasons. Thank you again to Gen Parks for getting those for us. If anyone is seeking an employee, consider Grace Ann Parks the dark seeker. And we will be doing some further history of our beloved game in the coming weeks. As we trudge through these next early seasons, we are certain there will be very important information in them, and we're going to bring that to you as well. And of course, as always, thank you so much for sending in all the news, all the messages you're sending us, all the different posts from different Bachelor players around the world. This stuff is the food that we consume while we (laughs) live in the pit, and without it, we would die. So please keep sending it. Yeah, different nominations for Parasocial Play of the Week. Some very creative ones. And again, uh, let me just remind you, if you have any access to that painting that Nick Vial has of him and Dr. Harrison, (laughs) please let me know, because I have to have that. Before we go, what is the dwab at? It has been 6,741 days without a Black Bachelor. Praise be Lord Harrison. Please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us. And then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then. Creams and serums are made of 70% water, 15% preservatives and emulsifiers, leaving only around 15% for the active ingredients that your skin needs. But luckily now, there's fiber skincare. 15 years ago, the scientists behind fiber skincare started working on nanofibers, which are 500 times smaller than human hair. You know, I I saw that in um, Three Body Problem. Mm. One year ago, they patented a way of wrapping the nanofiber around oil or liquid-based ingredients. This means they can deliver five times the active ingredients compared to creams or serums as there is no need for water, preservatives, or emulsifiers. The first formulation made with this technology is plant-based, anti-wrinkle, 
uh, it's a set of patches that you use over a series of seven days. You just put these on whenever you would apply your serums and your skin is going to feel tighter in 10 seconds. And over the seven day program, it has been clinically proven to reduce wrinkles by get this 19.4%, a very precise percentage. In fact, Mm. they have a tighter skin guarantee. If your skin isn't tighter in seven days, they're going to give you your money back. No questions asked. You get the tighter skin guarantee with this seven-day routine. Tighter skin or your money back. Get a 15% discount code by using the discount code GAME. That's Fiber Skincare. Sweaters, candles, the dreaded bathrobe. Unfortunately, Mother's Day gifts can be a little predictable and boring. That's why an Aura Frame is the perfect gift to mix things up this year. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. My mom loves hers. I'm throwing pictures of Skabuli and our cat up there. She's laughing. She's texting me. He's so cute. I wish I could meet him. It's the next best thing to, to meeting my cat, really. You know, I love that it was so easy to set it up. I've recently learned I'm not good at uh, building things and I need an easy install. And this only takes about two minutes to set up the frame using the Aura app. Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected, come with unlimited storage so you can share as many photos as you want from your phone to your mom's frame. She'll be grateful it's not another sweater and she'll love the frame to see more of you. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com. Use code ROSES at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.